Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I'm speaking again with Jay Shapiro. Jay is a documentary filmmaker and he has articles in Aereo, uh, Arc Digital, a few other places. And I've had him on before to talk about a few things. He's got interesting takes on stuff. And uh, so today we're going to be just diving right into all the current insanity. And uh, his latest article that he has in Aereo about um, some of the stuff in the media and relating to what's going on with all the issues around policing and Black Lives Matter. Hey, Jay, thanks for coming back on. Thanks. I think this is my third time on your show. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm your best guest. Oh, uh, no, no, no. Sure just, uh, <laughs> actually, no, you're, you're second, I think, because Sadia uh, and I have been on, she's been on five times now, so. Oh, uh, man, I gotta uh, catch up. Yeah it's, yeah, it's like the Saturday Night Live thing, you know, like the sixth guest thing. I don't know if you remember Oh, yeah, that. you got it. Yeah, like you give like me a special prize or something. You get like a special vest. Yeah. Send me a microphone or something. Yeah, that's it. But, uh, yeah, so how are you doing? Uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it as well as anyone could be doing right now, I guess. Uh-huh. It's been uh, it's been a fun ride, a fun adventure. I always love talking to you. You're like this voice in the whirlwind that I, I check on um, and bounce things off of. You're like, you're like an underground comedy club in the podcast circuit where I could go and test things out and see if they work and you tell me if I'm crazy. So you're, yeah, you're well, whatever. I, I, I don't know if I'm a good judge of what's crazy or not, but... Uh, oh, God, yeah. Now okay. who knows. Okay, I just want to get into, like, your latest article that you have out in Aereo. Yeah. Um, you know, I really like that, and I agree with it. But we had a little, uh, whatever, argument, whatever you want to call it on Twitter. It was just, you know, a couple of tweets back and forth where I was saying if you took the aggregate of CNN, MSNBC, New York Times, mm-hmm. Washington Post, you're as bad as Fox. Mm-hmm. And you were saying no. Have you changed uh, that? Yeah. Have you changed your mind about that? Well, they're bad. They're certainly bad. They're bad in such different ways that it's hard to compare. So maybe that's what I was disagreeing with. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, they're certainly bad. So yeah. I mean, I. It, and to be fair, so this article, just to, to people who haven't read it, yeah. it's a short one. I think it's one of my more straightforward ones. You know, I tend to write philosophy stuff and go in these interesting thought experiments. This one was a pretty straightforward. Like, hey, here, here's the thing. So I called the police violence and race why the data matter and why they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's pretty simple. The first half is why the data matters, which, which I think is, is totally, um, you know, obvious to most people or, or some people. It's obvious why data matters. Um, but I want to be careful. What I really wanted to do, honestly, was I am getting as frustrated as everyone out there with the, the, the claims that the data doesn't matter or lying about the data or being rather selective about the data, in particular with this hypothesis of black men, especially black men, but black men and women are being gunned down by the police, you know, disproportionately to the, to the total population. And this proves by itself that there are, you know, uh, just rampant racism in, in the way that we police this country. That's a, you know, a, a provocative claim. And it's one that uh, obviously the data has something to say about. Data always has something to say. Well, maybe even that's too much. Data has something to show. It's up to us to say what the data shows. But data has something to sort of, um, as I said, if you don't have data, you're always hypothesizing and never falsifying. Mm-hmm. If you put out a hypothesis in the world, whether it's anything as big as evolution or as small as, you know, um, I had a headache, then I took aspirin, and the aspirin made my headache go away. That's my hypothesis. Uh, data can help falsify the claim. It can never prove the claim. We know this about science, but it can falsify it. So that, so that's that's the claim that uh, black men are being killed disproportionately in this country by police. 
that's a claim that the data uh, does not falsify. Of course, it shows that. But does that then show the claim that that is that the uh, racism is the cause? Well, that's a very different question that it's hard for data to answer. So, but it can say something about it. We can get into that. But really, what I wanted to do is the first half of the short article of why data matters is sort of obvious. Of course, it matters. Uh, the second half of the article, I think, is the more emotional one, and I I tend to try to do this a lot of really give. Um, the opposing argument to my intuition about an issue as much, we call the steel manning, of course, but as much sort of uh, sympathy and empathy as possible. So the second half, which is also short, called Why the Data Don't Matter, is more of an emotional thing. And I use this analogy of like, uh, I use an analogy in a little article where it's like, imagine that you're holding a pencil, you're at your desk or something doing some work, and then you get this phone call and, the, and it's the cops and they tell you, you know, we found your car and all of the windows have been smashed. And you immediately, you're pissed, obviously, <laughs> hearing this news and you immediately suspect this, uh, that the culprit is, you know, an, I wrote like an ex-business partner who you've been in this fight with. Like you're pretty sure this is the only person in the world who's pissed at you enough to do this. And you're pissed, so you slam the phone down and you snap the pencil in half and you throw it against the wall. And that, of course, is like, it's something, it's not rational. The pencil did nothing to you, right? Like if a Spock-like Star Trek alien is watching you, they'd be like, what did this pencil do to them? Right. And, but human emotion and human anger in particular is a very funny emotion that is not rational. And this is not a defense of it. Always, of course, ex explanations of human behavior are not justifications of them. Um, but it explains, of course why you threw the pencil like the explanation of like well i was pissed and the pencil was in my hand so i threw the pencil um it's kind of good enough for a human and so i'm trying to use that as a way to prime the reader for the the analogy there of you know the the, the rational data of who broke the windows in that little hypothetical is totally like not important to the question of why did that person break the pencil and throw it against the wall it was just like they were pissed and they did that thing yeah. Um, and so, so you already see where I'm going with yeah. the analogy of George Floyd and that image uh, is, is the pencil breaking, is this kind of outrage and pouring into the streets. And we have to be very careful with that. And then to your question about media, and then I'll, I'll let you jump in, the media, you could see uh, what I'm concerned about is, okay, it's not a rational response. We're breaking pencils. That can make some sense because we're humans and we do that kind of thing. But you know, but now what? Because if, if you're trying to, if you break the pencil and you're trying to solve this problem of your ex-business partner breaking your windows, <laughs> like focusing on the pencil being broken as, you know, somehow material to the solution is obviously the wrong path. So it, we have to be very careful here about police data and violence against and racism and these claims. If we focus on the wrong thing, here we can make a humongous mess, which of course is why the data actually really matters, not as far as explaining why people are out in the streets yelling, but about what, what we do now. And that's where I'm concerned about the media and the incentives that seem very misaligned to keep us breaking as many pencils as possible and, and cynically not focusing on um, solutions that don't fit the narrative. So there you go. You take it away. That, yeah. That's why I wrote the article. Okay. No. And like with, with the media thing, right? I think they're both bad for two different reasons. Like there's completely different reasons why I think, you know, Fox news and MSNBC are bad and they're both bad for different things. 
but I think what it comes down to essentially, and it's, you know, like him or hate him, but Michael Malice, I think, describes this perfectly. And he says, they're factual, but they're not truthful. Mm. So I, I believe both of them That's are good. like that. Yeah. And I mean, I've been saying it's narrative driven and it's been narrative driven for a while. And so, okay, I, 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 another thing for like the the data doesn't really matter is if, okay, this was a, a survey out of New Jersey. This was done in, like, I heard about this in like 2016, 2017, and I don't have it in front of me because I can't find it again. But it was, the numbers were roughly something like self-reporting when mm-hmm. they asked people, you know, and they broke it down by race. Black people said something like 35% of the time they would consistently speed. Now, that's this is self-reporting, right? So that there's an issue right there. Um, white people said about 20% of the time. They would speed on, in their cars on the it, highway. Yeah, So and consistently, not just, okay, I want to overtake someone, okay, or I'm really running late today, I'll, I'll go. But no, like consistently always going 10, 15, or whatever. I hear I'm saying kilometers, but like you know, 10 miles an hour faster, <laughs> right? Um, mm-hmm. Black people got tickets only 20 only 25 percent of black drivers got tickets whereas 35 percent reported they would speed consistently so that's under representation on ticketing mm-hmm. and with whites it was like 25 percent getting tickets and 20 percent saying they're speeding so that's over representation now yeah if a black driver gets stopped and the cop is an asshole or the cops had a bad day or whatever a multitude of reasons but that black driver has a bad interaction with that police officer Mm-hmm. And you're hearing in the press conti- consistently, cops are targeting black people. Now he do- it doesn't matter to him that he's statistically not being targeted as much as what's being reported, right? It, it makes no difference to him. He's had a he's pissed off that he's had an asshole cop who's yeah. treated him badly, and he thinks back to every single time in the media he's read about cops targeting black people, and then he chalks that up to another sh- instance of racism. Yeah. Now. Whether he's justified to be pissed off at that cop or not, that's just creating more animosity, right? And so my problem with the media with all this is I'm looking at people like John McWhorter and Coleman Hughes, and, you know, Thomas Chatterton Williams, uh, Camille Foster, like, there's a whole list of them, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and you can go to like the absurd ones like Candace Owens um, <laughs> because she gets some of this too. And they're, you know, they're being called, you know, Uncle Tom's and... Like, you know, race traders, coconuts, and the UK, I hear the term bounty, like the bounty chocolate bar. Um, you know, like just horrific things. And I think back to ex-Muslims. And, you know, yeah, yeah. Majid Nawaz, Ayan Hirsi Ali, uh, they were two of the, well, Majid's not an ex-Muslim, but Ayan Hirsi Ali and, you know, Ali Rizvi, early on, like he was on Joe Rogan, like within the first year or two that Joe Rogan was on. Um, you know, Sarah Hayter was speaking out, like, and they were being called the most horrific things. The same thing, like, you know, Majid got called a house Muslim, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, if you can spot that, if you're in the atheist community or you're ex-Muslim or whatever, and you can spot that in the media about Islam and you can see that slant, why not take a step back and look at these other people who are speaking out, you know, like I said, who are saying, no, this is there is no racism. and Or it's not systemic like you're just talking about. It's the remnants of racist policies that were there that are no longer there but we haven't had a chance to deal with them because we're doing the wrong thing like you said so i mm-hmm. think that's where the media plays a has a huge problem like it's i think the whole bush years you know bush two years was a a, a trial balloon to see if we can prove that america's racist by <laughs> saying you know it's islamophobic and then when obama gets in 
you know, you're that like I don't know if you saw those two threads I sent you. Like the the graphs are showing like right around the time Obama gets in, the articles on racism, right. white uh, white fragility, white supremacy, all that just starts shooting up. By 2015, yeah. 2016, they're like triple what they were in 2008. So yeah. there's a problem well, there. Yeah, well, there's a lot there that, <laughs> that yeah. you just laid out. Um, on the let me take because I realize I sort of didn't address it in my first recap of my yeah. uh, of your question of like yeah. is Fox as bad as the others and whatever. Um, in the way that they're the same danger is the way that they're all trying to make money. And so when I talk about like the incentives being misaligned, I don't even think any of this is is necessarily, you know, nefarious on the act of the media that like they wanted want to incite a race war or they wanted to incite a race war for some ideological reasons. I think they're a blind force in the market, like just about everything is that that smells money and goes towards it. And the, the race war makes money. And sowing division makes money and 2020, the election of 2020 makes money. I mean, the one piece of data in my, so I go through like data, I go through police data, of course, that I've been trolling and, 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 uh, trolling, I mean, and bringing up from, from what, yeah, not troll from, from Washington post. There's a few sources I could talk about. And I, and I actually get, I say like, this is a huge success of the last decade of focusing on this stuff is actually that the fog of the data is starting to lift. You talk about self-reporting data of, uh, well, individuals, but self-reporting data of police, um, uh, departments reporting their killings, uh, when they have them or th their shootings is getting better. We still have a ways to go, but it's getting better and the data is getting better. And we just have to, as good scientists, be agnostic to what the data will show and where we can find it. But that data is getting better. I have it in front of me right here. But there's another piece of data that matters that I really wanted to focus on in the article. And it's almost, you know, subversive the way I put it in there. But June was the best month ever for cable news ratings. And, 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 okay, so that's a hypothesis. Why was it? Like, what would you put out there? And you could say, obviously, the pandemic and people being home plays a role, but doesn't necessarily explain June because we were locked down before that. And it wasn't even the strictest lockdown in June. Well, the news cycle itself was very loud and very scary and full of race war and full of this and full of vitriol and all of that. Um, if you if you think a news station is not going to try to repeat what works when they see their bottom line go up and they see their ratings hit an all time high, you're just crazy and you don't understand the the power of of money in the bottom line. And those are the incentives that I'm worried about. And I also put this, they are now competing to give them some, some empathy as well. They are competing for your attention and for your eyeballs and your clicks with everybody with a cell phone out there in the world on the internet that can reach you almost as easily as they can with their TV stations now. So it's like this downward vicious cycle. You sort of hinted at it, this downward vicious cycle where it gets, it seems like more outrageous and they try to one up each other. They're, you are now competing with CNN if you go out into a protest and have a cell phone and happen to catch, you know, someone getting punched in the face from Antifa, whatever the hell is happening out there. And you broadcast that, CNN wants that. Fox wants that. So in that way, they're exactly the same. And I, I want to ask you a question because this is kind of like crazy. I looked it up this morning. Um, how much money do you think Sean Hannity makes per year? The, 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 just his salary. The salary I, of, yeah. Just I, take a guess. 20 million. I don't know. I, I have no clue. 
It's $40 million. Oh, my God. Which is crazy. Well, and they keep... all make this amount of money. You, know, yeah. you go down the list, like Rachel Maddow's at like $9 million. This is salary. And I looked up, because I, I couldn't find these numbers. Someone out there listening might be able to do it better than I could. I, this, is a, this is a pretty new problem. Obviously, there's a, you know, an old famous line about the media that they should report the news and not make the news. Um, we have turned... I don't know how to phrase these sentences without like, you know, yeah. flogging us too much. But but it has happened that news anchors are celebrities now and stars. We know this and they get paid like it. Walter Cronkite was the biggest news anchor in the 60s. Everyone keeps comparing this moment to the late 60s. But this is a factor that's very different. Walter, I, and I can't find his salary in 1968. But in, in 1981, which was his most lucrative salary, he was making $1 million, which was basically his last contract, which is about 2.7 in today's uh, yeah. terms, which is a lot, but not $40 million. No, that's, no. The, that's the top guy uh, in, the, in the game. In the 60s, I imagine it was much, much, much less. And, and the notion of newsrooms reporting the news rather than making the news uh, was, was held to in a way that I think we are, are underestimating the influence and the incentives that are going to make it very difficult to climb out of this moment that wants to keep us in this cycle. And now, and I'm sure we'll get into this, is not only saying the data doesn't matter, but the data itself or looking at the data itself is an act of racism or, or yeah. you know, it, 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 it fits into some narrative that they seem fully committed to because it's lucrative. Uh, I, so I, I don't I don't know how we quite break that. I know there's some hope conversations like this and on the Internet and Joe Rogan's of the world that's somehow seen outside of that cycle. You know, may, maybe that's a response to it because CNN and Fox are also jealous of Joe Rogan's views, I'm sure. And maybe oh, yeah. they'll take views from that at some point. And you don't think Hannity's jealous of Rogan's hundred million dollar paycheck now from Spotify? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, he, he beat that's true. He beat him. I don't know how many years that was. I didn't look yeah. But, but still, OK, like a hundred million dollars. I mean, Rogan himself said that's obscene. But, yeah. okay, but, now, but, but, but just to like give you the credit there in that way. Fox and CNN and MSNBC are all are all the same kind of problem that the incentives they could tell whatever story they want. CNN was the one who broadcast Trump rallies without cuts in 2016 and then like, you know, said, oh, sorry about that. Like, no, you liked the clicks. And Donald Trump is right when he says that the media loves him. He knows they're addicted to ratings. It's like we created a world that and I also want to just put in I'm talking a lot about money in markets yeah. here. I, markets are, are not just money. Markets are also clicks and likes and retweets. And there is a sort of, there's a currency to that, just a sort of social status goes that we also have to talk about and the amplification of that. And news media is also uh, addicted to that. Um, th th this, this is a problem that is, is beyond just sort of looking at the bottom line. It's easy to sort of see the market incentives when Sean Hannity gets paid 40 million, but we can look at the, the race to the clicks and the race to the bottom. Um, yeah, and I worry about this being a wrecking ball through conversation and yeah, and seeing the way that, that these incentives seem to be wreaking havoc on looking at data. One more thing about the data. I know I'm talking a lot, but that one more works. thing about the data. The point of data and the point of looking at data, I want to be very clear about this because I've... Uh, and also, and also, as an aside, like I got pretty good at spreadsheets and doing data analysis because I love fantasy baseball. Like this is not like I've gotten. I'm a, I have a Google sheet that I have in front of me now. That I've been promoting a lot on my Twitter and stuff that has all the police killings and I, and you could do a lot of data analysis. But it's because I wanted to win in fantasy baseball and I got good at like, you know, how do I beat my friends? You know, what is causing my team to do well or or poorly here? These are things you can. So, so, so here's the thing. So you're playing Moneyball. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, baseball is the best game for it because you have a lot of variables that are controlled. Anyway, we can talk about that. But um, what data can do is it does not tell you the answer. Like I said, it falsifies hypotheses and it can highlight things that might be the way to in, the place to intervene. So here's mm -hmm. here's the question. I also want to be clear about this. In my article and in my stance, racism is real. And something like systemic racism, I know that term gets used very nefariously by the critical race theorists and stuff, but something like, um, you know, the residue, I, I definitely put the, the, the drug war, the war on drugs in America, which started with like overtly racist inception is still a problem. And, yeah. and, and we have to talk about if like you, if you mean those kind of things and redlining and whatever else is racist, we could talk about those things and I am not dismissing those, but here's what the data can do. The data can highlight areas where you may be finding a causal relationship between the thing that you're looking at and the variable you're putting in. For an example, this is an example I use a lot and I like it, it's very simple. If you are, are looking at a train, a train platform, imagine you're in a very busy train platform and you know nothing sort of about the world and you notice that the train arrives in the station just after a whole bunch of humans stand on the train platform. So, okay, there's a correlation. Train platform fills up, train comes. But is that a causal relationship? You could test that. You and I are smart enough to know right now that it's not, but you could test that. You could be like, hmm, I have a hypothesis. A, a crowded train platform causes a train to arrive at that station. So you test it by let's put a bunch of people on a train platform and see if a train comes. Oh, it doesn't come. That can't be the causal relationship. So you look for other other causal relationships. Obviously, it's something like, you know, a, a train schedule and pressing a button, a very complicated thing it yeah. explains the causal relationships of why a train comes. But if a train coming at that station uh, late every day was a problem that you wanted to solve as like, like the manager or consultant for this train station, and you were looking at that variable of like, oh, I know how to solve the problem, just fill the, the platform with people and then the train will come on time you would fail because you did not find the causal relationship. So good data analysis cannot be a creative solution for you, but it could highlight things in areas that may be a place to intervene. So here's the question. If the problem is racism in America, and particularly for the black community, uh, where, sh where ought we intervene? And so if you're looking at, if your hypothesis is the black community is, um, doesn't have the kind of equality of opportunity that we all long for. Not equality of outcome, it's you know, equality of opportunity that we all long for. And it doesn't have it. And so we wanna fix that. And if your hypothesis is, I think the reason is cops are killing too many of them and that's what's causing the problem. Okay, that's a hypothesis. The data could actually start to highlight things for you about where you ought to intervene. And when you look at the data, that is not the place to intervene. And that's why this is scary because yes, blacks are disproportionately killed. They make up what, 13% of the population in America mm -hmm. and they make between they make up between, depending on what you're looking at, 30 and 35% or 25 and 35% of, of all the killings. So what causes this disparity? Well, you start to fold in other things that may be what we call the confounding variables, a confounding variable like poverty. Okay, do, do, let's put poor people in there of all races. Let's put education rates. Let's put single parent homes. Let's fold in nutrition values. Let's fold in all of these things. And here's the scary part, Obi. Like what you will find when you start doing that, of course your racial disparities will start to flatten at that point. 
So you might think, ooh, yes, the place to intervene is we need better nutrition. The place to intervene is we need better after-school programs, things like I'm a huge sports fan, as you know, and sports pr programs show a tremendous prom promise at, at pushing these kind of things in the right directions. Oh, we need to fix the drug war. Oh, we have too many guns out there. Like you could start to find better places to intervene than just the cops killing people. But here's the scary part that people don't want to talk about, and this is what I think is driving the religion that I think you want to get to of the wokeism is even if you start to flatten all of those variables, you will not flatten it all the way. If you flatten all of the economic variables and all of the nutritional values and all of these other things that are systemic, the war on drugs or whatever, you will still be left with a disparity because there are also ideas in people's head. This is something that my co-host Coleman talks a lot about. We have to be able to talk about uh, not just, you know, education rates we have to be able to talk about cultural ideas and we and it would be insane to not talk about clusters of populations that tend to to um you know cluster along phenotypical lines of race and whatever else and ethnicity that have ideas in their heads and they might have different values cultural values that emphasize different things that may also be a factor that you can still put into your analysis. It's harder to do. You need to do polling and this kind of stuff into your data analysis that might highlight, oh, the thing we need to do is also talk about this. This is, of course, to bring it back full circle to your question, where reformed Muslims and ex-Muslims are not afraid to talk about ideas that are different in different cultures and, and how they also produce outcomes. And in fact, of course, you, you could put them in the driver's seat. It becomes a chicken and egg question. But that is the thing that is sacrilegious to talk about in the woke community is talking about differences. And when someone just for the final thing, when someone tries to flatten the variables of like, it seems like the right science experiment as if you have an immigrant group from Africa who are also black. So if racism itself was the, the main factor, they would they ought to suffer the same kind of racism that uh, African-Americans do. And, but we don't tend to see that. In fact, African immigrant communities do tremendously well. So then you have to start thinking about different ideas in their heads. And this is where I am fully upset with the media because I, I am, am fairly convinced that a very pronounced, loud victimhood narrative that gets pushed upon them and has, of course, like you said, some facts to it, although not a lot of, let's say, helpful <laughs> truths to it, um, is a bad idea to entrench in a new generation of people who are, frankly, doing pretty well if, the, if this damn narrative would get out of their way. And this is where people like Camille, and even as much as we don't like her, someone like Candace, attracts a lot of attention for some of the sort of like, you know, just gum, gumption, do it yourself, climb yourself out. Because, because I think the victimhood narrative itself, and you brought this up, becomes a, a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, and it's, it's but, but what I was touching on there was the sacrilegious notion of people are still deathly afraid to talk about bad ideas in a culture that is not theirs. We're still dealing with the cultural relativism, oh, yeah. uh, fear and poison that we just have to get through. And it's driving me crazy, obviously. Okay, but I mean, the cultural relativism stuff, I mean, I just, because you did bring up a lot there. Yeah. That, it's still around and, you know, things like critical race theory are using it, but that's been around since the 60s via postmodernism, right? So there, there's mm -hmm. two different strains of it now, if you want to talk about it. But this this whole thing, like you're talking about, like, are you focusing on the wrong thing? You know, because um, 
so critical race theory, you know, everything is racism. So it's going to, it's not, was there racism present? It's how was racism present right. in this situation, right? It's always how was, not was there, which two different questions. Um, and if you look at queer theory, it's always trans, transphobia, gender theory, it's, you know, um, sexism, patriarchy, this and that. It's, it's always the same thing. Now, yeah, that, that they've, they've decided that they, um, it's a variable you can't look at. This is why it's an anti-scientific and religious yeah. thing. It, it, they're, they're telling me, as someone who's looking at the data, that there's no question left to ask. Yeah, the but question that, but, of racism is is the foundation, and that is why it's a, a very scary, unscientific religious movement. But also, when you look at what they say, like okay, this, I'm going to give you like a this is tin, this you can consider this tinfoil hat Alex Jones goop level crazy. Okay, like it's but. Again, this is from speaking to people, speaking to a couple academics. If you look at some of the work like Jonathan Haidt's done or even mm -hmm. some of the things Christina Summers talks about. So critical race theory, intersectionality, um, you know, intersectionality, I think, what, 89 was around when Crenshaw started yeah. writing the papers about it. Uh, before that, you had black feminism. Queer theory had some of it in the 80s and stuff. But I don't, uh, like, as full-fledged fields in the academy not as parts of other fields um and teaching that was roughly around you know 89 to 91 that's roughly when they came in if you look at if you follow that then and you just follow the okay how long does it take you to get a bachelor's how long does it take you to get a master's how long does it take you to get a doctorate <laughs> by the late 90s you'll have people who are getting doctorates and masters getting out of university and again, I'm gonna, I'm gonna you know, make the claim that by the late '90s, I'm not saying things were perfect. I'm not saying things were, yeah. you know, but they were they were even great. I think things things were really good, and it progressed to the point where we got to the colorblind stage, where it hmm. it didn't really matter. And we could go back and deal with things like okay, in St. Louis, um, and this was okay, whatever. Tim Pool, I saw this on his Twitter feed. Like he was talking about this thing in St. Louis. Man, you still the, follow a lot of real. I, I I follow a lot of weird people. I, I know, well, I, but I, through it. Anyway, yeah. But but anyway, so they they have like um, they they created these segregated townships for black people. Now, yeah, uh, they were only a couple of miles. You know, they're a little township, like a couple of miles square type of thing. But you might have to go through five of these townships to get to work, and you're black and you're poor. You don't have enough money to fix your tail light on your drive to work you get five different tickets 20 bucks a pop you can't even pay one of them now you have five to pay right they got rid of segregation they got rid of all that but these were still depressed communities and it was now i guess predominantly black but it's a mixture of you know they are mixed and they're the one thing they all have in common is they're poor and this affects mm -hmm. every single person in one of those communities so that is a systemic racism like that was a racist policy and the systemic oppression is still there. But if you go looking to solve that by solving race, you're not going to fix that problem, right? There is, there is a racial component because more black people are affected. But now they're not being affected because they're black. They're being affected because they're poor. Yeah. So if you go to fix the racism problem there, you're not going to fix it. And so, like, this is my crazy theory here. So, like, these people got out of masters and PhDs. Now they're looking for work. By the end of the '90s, you know, it's it's like the Clinton era uh, coming to a close. Oh, we want to deal with racism. We want to fix want to fix all these other inequities that are still there. Oh, this guy's got a PhD in you know race theory. 
well, we need a chemist. We're going to hire a PhD in chemistry. We need someone to fix racism. We're going to hire a PhD in you know, race theory. Yeah. So you got a bunch of these interns coming to government. You got a bunch of these interns coming to media. You got a bunch of these interns, you know, and lower level management. By the time Bush's term ends, these people have hired more people who think like them because, again, you want to fight racism, you go hire a race theorist, right? And so they've they're part of the establishment now. Like your Congress, or was it earlier this year, or was it last year, passed a diversity, inclusion, and equity committee or something like that i don't know how binding it is washington state they've got that even though the the voters didn't want it the the next session of um their legislature they passed it we've got that in our government right this is so you know the new york times earlier this year or was it yeah it was earlier this year no sorry it was earlier last year and then over hanukkah of last year right so middle of last year four black girls got beat up by two south asian kids two South Asian boys and one of the boys, I think pissed on one of the girls or all four of the girls, whatever. It's just horrific, right? New York times op-ed front page, you know, front page of the op-eds. It's a problem of whiteness, right? Okay. That's a fucking problem. That's huge. <laughs> no, but okay. Wait, wait, in Hanukkah last year, when, you know, they were killing Jews like every night, almost in the last night, there was that black guy. He was like one of the, you know, the, the black Israelites or whatever the black Hebrews. I don't know what you call mm-hmm. that group. Again, the New York Times, like, let's not make this about whiteness. Let's not take in whiteness and attack each other. During the riots, oh, well, you know, uh, Jews have taken on whiteness because they were part of the slave trade. And uh, property is uh, property is violence. Property is whiteness. So you should be glad to get rid of your property. You pay reparations. I mean, this stuff is coming from somewhere. And, yeah. you know, if you want to talk about, like, anti-Semitism or whatever, the, look at the anti-Semitism. I'm sorry, Black Lives Matter as a movement, they're aligned with... Um, you know, and they're not one big group, so that's a problem. But some of them are aligned with Nation of Islam. Some of them are aligned with mm-hmm. CARE. You know, they say shit like property is violence. I mean, Nicole Hannah-Jones is saying it, and she's got a Pulitzer, for Christ's sakes. Okay, sorry, I, my, my rant's going to go off. The Pulitzer Center, right? You can look on their website now. I'll send you the link. Mm-hmm. Uh, all their prizes are now going to be ma- based on diversity, and equity, and inclusion. And it's going to be a moving goalpost. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so I, I don't know, like what uh, I don't know where I should jump in. I know um, I, I put a lot there, but I mean, like it's it's all crazy. There's so much there that we got to fix. Well, it's yeah. Well, so this is the other thing about um, fixing stuff, yeah. uh, and it, like like what I think what lens we use, how how much we zoom out or zoom in here, kind of matters when looking at all this stuff. I totally I, I agree with you on. The academia, you know, I guess I'm always asking a lot of like why questions because my question about I tend I love philosophy, as you know, but I tend mm-hmm. to think about psychology more than philosophy, actually. And I tend to ask the question of like, why are people attracted to that? Because I, I and I give people the benefit of the doubt. I think people can be obviously, you know, very stupid, but people people are not that stupid. And there's just there's so much out there and there's moments it sounds I could hear it in your voice where you'll hear somebody make an argument or an article like that where you have to wonder are they are they actually that stupid that they don't know how to understand like very basic statistical analysis like I just did with like the the train station or are they do they badly want the answer to be something else and it's just a psychological 
sort of, you know, uh, a roadblock that they will not get over because I wrote another article. It's the implications they fear of allowing themselves, like the implications of doing all the data, being smart enough to know that if you flatten all the variables that I talked about, with about police killings and race, for example, you're still going to be left with a disparity in different communities. You they will not erase it. You are You are stuck with, I think in their minds, the implication that certain cultures have better ideas than others and it's a, it's a it's an idea in their head that they do not want in their head because they think it makes them david duke or the kkk or whatever and so i i tend to give people the benefit of the doubt of not being stupid for a long time <laughs> and i'm still doing it so with the critical race theory stuff which is which is um it seems like are they really this is it really this stupid is it really that that, that they don't understand it and I don't think it is. And now, because we could talk about religious people being stupid, or mm. if it is a religion, it's more of a psychological, let's call it prayer, because that's their word, a psychological prayer for the world to be a different world than the one we actually live in. I think that's what religion generally is, which is, again, sympathetic, because death is weird and real, and um, the, we live in a chaotic universe, and bad things happen to good people, and good things happen to bad people, and it seems very crazy. And so you desperately want the universe not to be like that, and so you badly want there to be some sort of cosmic order in the world. Uh, and so you believe it. And so I don't like there's it's a it's a stupid conclusion from some point of view, but it's also a sympathetic one uh, because there's actually psychological blocks happening to it. So my question is really like, so why are people attracted to all that stuff that you put out there? Why were the kids I went to college with? I, I, your rant was was good. And you took it up to like the late 90s, which, uh, of course, is no coincidence that planes flew into our buildings at the exact wrong time <laughs> when these kinds of theories felt very harmless. Like, OK, these kids just sort of uh, are, you know, it's a it, it's a fringe idea on college campuses and we don't need, really need to worry about it so much. But when the when the plane flew into the, to the towers and people who weren't stupid could do the little calculus in your head. And be like, you know what? I think the ideas in in that th that fueled that particular thing. If I flatten all the variables, even of colonialism and blowback and racism and all the the Afghan war and abandoning Bin Laden, you know, it's it's you can't do the data analysis as cleanly as you could for something like baseball or even police race killings. But you know intuitively that you're going to find an answer that leaves the only variable left to look at, or one of the major causal variables ideas ideas in their heads and it's just such a scary thought for people and i think we're still still dealing with it so when those planes flew into the towers the escape route oddly to not let that thought into your head was this weird critical race theory thing and you were right they were poised getting degrees and whatever so a lot of them got um you know got high jobs or whatever. i don't think you're being alex jonesy about it i think it is what it is but the that moment was also particularly bad for us in a way I don't think that we understood because, again, of social media's rise and the media changing very rapidly where we suddenly were giving a lot of influence and power to, to youth, frankly, who for a lot of reasons are attracted to these ideas. And suddenly they had not just the pulpit, but they had sway over the media in a way that was, was kind of brand new and snuck up on us. So it just it just exploded into our discourse at that moment. And now I don't know how to unentrench it. And, you know, we could talk about going back in a time machine. How would you have stopped that thing? Um, I don't even know. It just, it, it was such a yeah. bad combination of, of technology and events. And no, but, but nine 11, like that's, I, I've talked to a huge, couple of people yeah. with this was 
This was like a, a really bad unattended consequence of 9-11 was the, it was like the, the perfect storm of the internet going more ubiquitous. Yes. Right. And a few years later, you know, social media starting, but then the rise of the narrative, because right away you had mm. Islam as a religion of peace. I mean, Bush said it two days after 9-11, yeah. right? So you had that narrative right up, rise up. And so, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that there wasn't narrative-driven news before, and, you know, you had stuff, and there was, you know, opinion pieces in this and that. But more often than not, at least there was facts coming through that you could just look at and judge. But after 9-11, I think that's when, like, again... I'm not saying they did this on purpose and we're going to have an, we're going to overthrow this or whatever. Like this is what they were taught or yeah. call it indoctrination, whatever, but this is what they learned. And they learned to look at it well, through that lens. That was the yeah, methodology they were given and that's what they yeah, did. Let me, yeah. I, let me sharpen even something I said, cause I think that's an important point. There, there's always been, you, you called it like narrative driven news. There's always been opinion pieces. Yeah. That's not new. Although it's, it's gotten obviously much, worse. much more. Uh, yeah. It's gotten worse and in, in news like, a, you know, Sean Hannity making $40 million <laughs> is not cause he knows how to read a teleprompter. <laughs> you know, it's, um, it's gotten worse, but that's, yeah, you're right. That's not entirely new. We're always deciding. I mean, I'm a filmmaker. I edit, uh, I can't, it, a lot of, we could go back to the Vietnam war, like the images that come out of there and what you decide to put on the news. These, these are selections that whether consciously or not, or whatever are building a narrative that you hope, as you brought up earlier, aligns with something like the true story. That's what good reporting ought to be. Mm. It, you can't, you're never going to bring your audience directly to Vietnam and be like, this is exactly what it's like. And you're going to sit them down for like a 12 hour lecture on like the history of Vietnam. No, you've got time and you've got to deliver something. And if you're doing your job as a journalist, they walk away being able to, you know, take a test and answer questions about what happened there in a way that, that they would sort of pass. Uh, but, but so we're always building narratives and we're always talking about what things mean in some bigger context that, that go beyond the facts. That's, that's kind of fine. But what, what you're right about that seems a little scarier here is the, the, the air and the illusion of academic and scientific rigor behind it, where they, they will not tell you that it's an opinion piece. What I'm telling you about the police data, like the, the, the Crenshaw thing of the question is not, was was racism present it's how did it manifest in this instance they are not saying that's like an opinion piece like you could anyone's feel free to write an opinion piece that puts everything into that narrative and fine we could disagree with it and we could talk about it but if you tell me that is like academic rigor and science this is where you know it makes my hair stand on end because you're talking about science as a methodology of being in contact with reality. And if you're telling me that, that that is science, what you just said is you do not question this hypothesis. This hypothesis cannot be questioned. We both know that is literally the definition of religion. It's do not ask this question. And I still feel and fear beneath that, to be sympathetic to it, beneath that is a fear that of Charles Darwin, that we actually live in a world we are, where we are not blank slates where we are born with some innate value. I, I put this up the other day, and, you know, and I think it's the most important point to talk about if we're gonna talk about this deep philosophical lens of the moment we're in. What we are badly struggling with as a species to contend with, and we always have been, but now it's just so in our face, is the two truths. It, I, I put this in an article I wrote, but it's in you know our Declaration of Independence, maybe our Constitution, maybe I got it wrong. All men are created equal. 
this is the line. Ben Franklin was the one who put the edit to Thomas Jefferson where it said, we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created, created equal. And it's a beautiful edit, an edit that may have saved the country up until now, where Thomas Jefferson's, Jefferson's original line, and I won't get it right here, was something more like divinely inspired or something. It was a, it was a reference to God that all men are created equal. Franklin changed it to the secular kind of wording of self-evident, all men are created equal. And in some ways that is true because consciousness is, is weird and all sentience has this, this impenetrable quality that we just, you know, you could call it soul if you're religious. There is this um, value to the process of experience that is on some level equal, morally equal. But the second truth that we have to contend with and somehow make along true with the first one is that all men are not created with equal uh, ability, equal opportunity, equal impulses, yeah. equal heights, equal everything. We, we don't come, and so that is not just the physical characteristics, that's also ability and ideas. Some people may be born, it would be a, a miracle of evolution, a statistical miracle if everybody was born with the exact same level of intellect or something like that, or moral talent, right? Of course yeah. we aren't, but those two things, keeping that in mind, and and that all men are also created equal somehow is the job of philosophy is the job of politics how do we make both of those true because if you fall so quickly to the second one that all men are not created with equal etc 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 you you hear the whispers of nazism you hear the whispers of of yeah. you know skull measuring you hear the whispers of eugenics and you're and you're fucking terrified so what we've done because we're so terrified of that and maybe the horrors of the 20th century have has rightfully made us fear that with with literally memories of you know concentration camps um is run to the other one that all men are created equal and in, and what we're going to do by all men are created equal which means if all men are genuinely created equal that means somehow you explain this one to me that east africans winning all the marathons is and and, and white people not is not a product of genetics or an unequal distribution of talent or this or that it must be somehow a product of systemic I don't know, cultural ideas or whatever, cultural evolution. It's all nurture, no nature. Yeah. So what we're, what we're doing, and of course, police violence must be, the disproportion must be because of racism. It's the same kind of equation you do there. And so what we're doing by running to the first truth that all men are created equal and trying so hard to ignore the second truth is cutting ourselves off from, so it's the nature-nurture argument still, but it's denying nature in the grand scheme, which is, as you know, the only way to, the only method we have of discovering nature is science. And so now we, we're at this precipice that's very scary of now attacking, shutting down STEM, to, yeah. being afraid of science. And so, and so it's up to, you know, to give them all the credit, those, these are hard truths to weave together. They are hard to weave together. How do I tell you that all men are created equal but this person has, you know, is smarter than this person. Well, they're not equal in that respect, but cosmically they're somehow equal. Majid does have a nice line with this that all men deserve, well, everybody deserves dignity, but no one's above scrutiny. We could talk about a different language of yeah. how to get to this, but, but I think it's a deep fear of science. And why, it's why I put up, and I'm terrified, that they're coming for Charles Darwin. I mean, they've been oh, doing they, it. Well, since, they maybe. are. Okay, yeah. bio, forget biology. They, they came for biology yeah. around 2016. Right, like the the the, the and, okay. Here's where you get into trouble, right? Mm -hmm. Queer theory is not about gay rights, lesbian rights. Um, like, like queer theory, if you look at it, that's where people get all 
you know, gays just want to sleep with little kids because Judith Butler and Gail Rubin, you know, wanted to normalize pedophilia. But that's queer theory. That's also where you get Peter, you know, Pete Buttigieg isn't really gay. He's just a man who sleeps with other men, but he doesn't embrace his queerness, so he's not gay, right? So queer theory is a very specific thing here. So that's where you get some of this stuff. But like, so they came after biology already. I mean, there was an article a few months well, can, back. Can, can, yeah, Go I want ahead. to jump in there. You could you could keep going, but what, but I think what's also let me let me throw this out there too because I'm talking a lot about the 20th century mm-hmm. and this moment we're in. I think there's another thing really fueling this. You're getting at it with the queer theory thing, actually. There's another element that we should recognize here. I think if we look back one day, we'll recognize this that we're also at a time where more than ever in human history you can alter that second truth, that all men are created, not created with equal this, equal that, equal that, whatever. You're talking about it a little bit with the queer theory thing. You can change, you know, well, the, the claims that you could change your, your sex are obviously uh, mm-hmm. anti-science by this, but changing your gender you could do, and of course, J.K. Rowling gets, in, like, the, the J.K. Rowling thing in queer theory is right on that target, where it's it's um, it's obviously a fear of of nature and a fear of Charles Darwin, but we also have to we have to recognize that there there are new abilities, whether it's through plastic surgery or through artificial intelligence or augmentation or whatever, to um, change your nature in a way that is we should we should put that on the table here of changing your nature, um, because maybe that's what maybe that's what we need to talk about and do here rather than denying that nature is a thing and so everything is uh, you know yeah. everything is a result of, of 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 prejudice and imbalance there there is there's an ability now to morph and change and resist and fight against nature which i'm actually sympathetic to and that's also why this is so scary because yeah, as, a, as an but, atheist it's like we're not stuck with nature we can change it we can so, change it but but, but but denying that it's actually real of course is not the way to solve that problem okay but here's the thing the thing with science with these people right like it's these people but like if you look at critical race theory okay when, the, the religious aspect of it the way i've been thinking about it and again just ask a couple like uh, ask someone who used you know self-proclaimed sjw like former mm-hmm. sjw whatever uh, think of intersectionality like christianity right so intersectionality is christianity Critical race theory is Catholicism. Queer theory is Lutheranism. You know, fat studies is whatever, Mormonism. Like, it's, they're different branches of that. Queer theory and critical race theory will look at identity two different ways, mm-hmm. right? They're both uh, a weird mix of blank slateism and essentialism, but different one, they, they rely on different things at different times. And it's, but they, they go in opposite directions on identity. But so, like, if you, these things are all focused on you know your identity as X, right? So if it's in fat studies, being a fat person, blah blah blah, like that's your identity. So that would be like, do you think of Christ as a Trinity or just as one person, right? Like, and that's how they're they're very. But it is anti science. Like, I mean, they talk about white ways of knowing, and that mm-hmm. that's like when people when they say that like okay. I don't know how much intersectionality and critical race theory you've read. Um, so, you know, if this is stuff I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, you already know, let me know. But like, they're basically telling you that like when they say systemic racism, they, they're saying the whole system is racist and white. What they mean yeah. by the system is the system of whiteness. So that includes the enlightenment. That includes science, right? 
before the Enlightenment, everything was a garden. The Enlightenment was the serpent mm-hmm. that came in, and white folk ate that apple. Like, you know, or, or whatever. It's, white people brought the serpent in, and the Enlightenment was a fruit of the tree of, you know, it was a tree of knowledge, and we ate it. White people ate it, and then they conquered the world with it. So that's what they want gone. They want the Enlightenment gone. So, no, they don't mm-hmm. like science. Yes, no, it, 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 if you do a study and the data doesn't show what they wanted to show, the study was racist. The data is racist. That's why in mm-hmm, Seattle mm-hmm. you have well, critical race. The, data, that, the method of reading it is racist. Yeah, but science, you know, yeah. that's why in Seattle, K through twelve, and as far as I know, it's the only school district doing this. But it's critical race math. <laughs> I, the Northwest. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, but I mean, come uh, on, critical race yeah, math. Like I know, I know. You're talking. You're talking to Benjamin Boyce. He's like stuck in it. So it's like, yeah, no. The, the Northwest is a particular. It's a shame. It's a beautiful part of the world. Uh, okay, whatever, man. New York, New York yeah. City. There's, yeah, no, there's, it's spreading. Yeah. Uh, Asian fam- it's, it's, Asian families want to sue the the like whatever the, the director of of the school yeah. department. I don't know what the guy's name is, but you know he's also bringing in stuff. About this white ways of knowing that, you know, uh, there, I'll, I'll try to find the video for you. It was a, a guy giving a lecture to school boards and things like yeah. that, saying that being on time is acting white. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> they're, they're, you've been to Africa, you're like, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. But, but here's the yeah. thing. They're teaching oh, that I, to I kids, right? Mean. They're also, they're, for a few years now, teachers and administrators have been told to, if, you know, a black kid or a brown kid, is late with your assignment, cut them some slack because that's just, you know, culturally insensitive if you don't. I think I think I saw this with a professor. There was a bunch of white kids who were demanding, well, asking and then demanding, of course, that all of the, the students of color be exempt from the final because of all the stress or whatever. And it's okay. like, no. Or okay. that, was at UC, that was at UCLA or Berkeley. UCLA. Or, yeah. Okay, yeah, okay. So that, 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 stuff that, has happened. Yeah. So, here, here's where you brought up lawsuit. Like, actually, I want to... I became a real like court watcher uh, when I made a film about international law a few a bunch of years ago, and and it gave me a whole reverence and and respect for the court. Here, when you were talking about the people moving into well, I keep I call them people also critical race. Let's call them ac- ac- activists because they're not academics. Activists coming out with degrees, um, getting jobs. Uh, I. I'm worried about judges. It hasn't happened yet, but no, you, you didn't mention judges, or even right, you, you can mention lawyers because they've definitely infiltrated lawyers. The ACLU. I it, 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 start, it started. It started in law oh schools. The, it started in yeah. law schools. Derek Bell was a lawyer. Uh, yeah. Kimberly Crenshaw was at Harvard Law under Derek yeah, Bell. They, they, they get well. Th- there's a long history of. <laughs> let's talk about this because I, in that film, I, I also dove into um, the the profession of law. Which in America, I don't know how it is in Canada, it's been like a, a running joke of, you know, like slimy lawyers our entire lives or whatever. <laughs> they just have this reputation. Uh, I think we I think we're um, we're we don't we don't give lawyers enough credit. The good lawyers especially are incredibly important and revolutionaries around the world went to law school. It's a it's a place and it's not gonna, and not just lawyers like activists. Gandhi was a lawyer. Yeah. We forget that Gandhi went to law school. Maybe not a very good lawyer, but he was attracted to that. And then he and then he left. Wasn't Ho Chi Minh uh, as well in law school in France? Tons. Yeah, tons of them. I, I'm trying to forget, remember some of the others. And maybe Martin Luther King was a reverend. I don't think he had a, a law degree. Um, maybe I'm getting that wrong. There was a lot of lawyers but, in the Westboro Baptist Church. 
Yes, there are lawyers around because people who are attracted to the profession of law are all, can be very interesting. They can be they can be attracted to wanting to rule people. They can be attracted to wanting to change people's ideas. Most of them who leave it and become activists, like these critical race theorists, um, realize that being a good lawyer is not making laws, but it's interpreting laws. I mean, you, well, being a good lawyer is arguing the case of what you want the law to mean and defending this. Being a good judge is not legislating from the bench, but actually interpreting what the law says and what yeah. it means. And that's pretty dissatisfying for an activist because they are set on changing the laws. So a lot of them then leave and, be, and take to the streets and they become activists, like Gandhi did, who was discovering all kinds of laws that he didn't like. Uh, or like those, those two lawyers in the protests in New York City who threw the Molotov, um, uh, yep. the Molotov cocktail. Happens all the time. And so, so I'm worried about the profession of law because this is an institution much maligned that we don't give enough, well, we do every four years, we're like, hey, protect the Supreme Court. Um, so far, the courts are holding. But this is what's coming, and this is what we have to watch for. Um, courts, I'm, I'm fascinated by the legal fallout and the challenges that are going to come from the infiltration of this stuff and the mainstreaming of this stuff. Uh, I know there's this one case and it's in New York, New York or something. I think it's the Department of Education and there are the, the white person who's suing with a bunch of them now suing based that, that they were discriminated against based on their race of being white and wrongful termination. It's going to be a very interesting case to watch. I ha at this point, I have no doubt that they will win that case. But if they lose it, I'm going to be uh, a little horrified. And what has happened under our noses, we all, of course, in this conversation know about what happened to the Southern Poverty Law Center, who are also lawyers, but also got very corrupt by this stuff very early on. The ACLU, the American Civil, Civil Liberties Union, uh, <laughs> I put something up of, of, of this collision of such interesting things, again, in the Northwest, but this um, ordinance from the city to wear masks for everybody, but people of color <laughs> are exempt. In Oregon, they, yeah. Yeah, if they if they say you know they're too worried about racial profiling or something, which I actually don't physically understand because it's like it's covering your face. But anyway, <sighs> if you could say like wearing a mask as a black person, I'm I'm afraid for my life because cops are going to be scared because of my mask. I don't want to wear the mask. This is a fascinating legal case. Fascinating, because now what you have, if white people sue, if anybody in that city sues, saying this is crazy, you're putting my health at risk. Uh, you, you, you're basically you're discriminating against me and my health. Let's call it my right to pursue happiness as a as a tenant that's protected in the Constitution, um, because of my race. Um, this is fascinating. I don't know if they'll win this case or not, but that, I immediately was like, I hope the ACLU takes this up because I could see it going pretty far. And then and then I looked at the story, and it was the ACLU that actually advocated for the policy. And I was like, holy shit. This is a problem. Yeah. But, oh no. It's... So we so we have it on the lawyer side now. But just one more thing to this, and it's something that we overlook sometimes. I'll give you a weird analogy, but it's happening on the lawyer side, which is very scary. You have activist lawyers who are pushing for this stuff, but it'd be much much scarier if it happens on the judge side. It hasn't. I don't see it, ha it happen on the judge side yet. The Supreme Court, um, it, it seems pretty immune to this stuff. And the reason is we're talking a lot about market incentives and incentives to keep your job. They have lifetime appointments which is a controversial thing that, that a lot of people hate. And I actually love it and think it was one of the most brilliant things that the founders did was give lifetime appointments. And here's why. When you have a lifetime appointment and you're not worried about losing your job, you can kind of do whatever the hell you want. 
like nobody's coming to cancel. There's no cancel culture at the Supreme Court. In the nomination process, of course, there's plenty of it, but there's none. At the, once you're in, this stuff can't touch you. And this then makes you impervious to these the mob that has different ideas coming after you. Um, it's also very important that we get good judges in there, and we need it, we need to really be careful. Obviously, uh, as much as I'm not uh, excited about him, I hope Biden beats Trump, even if it's just to get the nomination. I don't know if Ruth can live another four years, but th these are this is an important thing. And, and for an example that m will make sense to everybody about this, well, <laughs> if you're an American football fan, famous again back to the statistics, you do the statistics, and American football teams punt on fourth down giving the ball to the other team if you aren't football fans, uh, more than they ought to. The statistics say you ought to go for it on fourth down. But if you go for it on fourth, much more than they do. But if you go for it on fourth down and you don't make it, the other team gets the ball right yeah. where you left it. And they're sometimes much, much, you know, it's much easier to yeah. score or whatever, especially in the fourth quarter, punting on like a fourth down with three yards in, to go or whatever is, is often a bad idea in a close game, just given the statistics. But if you punt as the coach, who's the coach's decision, as you punt and the other team then comes and does a whole drive and wins the game you, and the reporters ask you about it, you're like, well, I thought my defense could hold up and, you know, could do that, which is a much like less you're going to get fired kind of answer. It's much less risky for the coach rather than saying if you're like you went for it and you didn't make it and the other team got the ball on the 10 yard line and then they scored right away and you lost the game. The mob is upset. You're, you're you know, all these biases that like you screwed up for this risky decision um, happen. So because of that pressure, coaches tend to not go for it on fourth down as much as they should, except coaches that have very, very good job security, like Bill Belichick for the New England Patriots and like Doug Peterson for the Philadelphia Eagles and a few others. And that that is the analogy there that you already see is give job security to judges and you are and they are less likely to make this mistake. So I'm fascinated when they are with what's coming is judges being forced to rule on what seems like incredibly obvious lines in the amendments and in the constitution about discrimination against race but they're going it, it's going to be put to the test in courts in this country it, it already it, all, okay. race theorists, it, it has in canada and i'm gonna okay okay no i'll give you a couple examples right yeah jessica yaniv so bill c16 uh -huh. came in and you couldn't misgender someone right and if you if you self-id'd yeah no i know you had to get all the rights of a woman right so jessica yaniv destroyed the lives of 16 immigrant women right mm -hmm. most of them lost their businesses they got back i think two thousand dollars each that's what they were their judgment was like yay um mm -hmm. now the bc human rights commission has a definition of a brazilian wax is that is which is performed on a biological vulva okay right now the yanev had cases thrown out before mm -hmm. and Kept learning and just said, okay, I made this mistake last time. And this time, if you actually read the judge, judgment, it was because Yanev was a bad witness and it was just mm. clear that, you know, wanted money. So this stuff is meant to be game. So it's already coming to courts. Mm. There was another case in, I want to say Calgary, uh, but it was in Alberta and it was four or five years ago. It was a First Nations woman holding up, hold up a sign, you know, she held up a sign saying, I want to kill white men or kill all white men. Right. We have hate speech laws in Canada, which I hate. I don't like hate yeah. speech laws. She was not found to have committed a hate speech crime or a hate crime by holding up a sign because of past oppression. Mm. We had two immigrants. One was let off on uh, because he molested a little boy because, well, that's, uh, you know, 
it's not he's not he doesn't that's part of his culture and he didn't know not to do it another one got like a mm-hmm. one-year suspended sentence for raping a woman again because of that stuff now that's judges so it's it's already coming into you know where do you get judges from lawyers where are you getting lawyers like i mean it's if if there's already i'm seeing it in like left-wing lawyers i see some of the things they're they're saying and they're not full on into it but they're using some of the terminology i'm like it's if because like it started from law school, so it's seeping into law. There's a, a woman I interviewed. Okay, well, so this is where this one's going to come to. The first case I think they're going to end up hearing is a transgender one. This will be an interesting test, but, but I'm not sure if, well, well, we'll talk about it. I'm not sure if it's the right analogy particularly with the race one that I'm, that I'm talking about, but because it's complicated, but transgender athletes competing in male mm. sports is coming and I, you know i don't know if the supreme court in the u.s is, is set to rule on any of that or if they expect accepted it actually i don't think they they accepted to hear it uh, i think it was idaho is maybe there's a school there there's a case that i have my eye on that might make its way all the way um that's going to be a fascinating one because so yeah i mean t- to your point it's a tricky one because it's a definition of sex versus gender, which is a real split. Um, saying sex is real, I, I know, can get you in trouble these days. But it, but if you look at the Supreme Court, when I put this out because it was just so funny, um, when they ruled on discrimination and, and basically said you can't fire someone because they're transgender or gay or whatever, and they went through it, like you read you read the opinion and basically yeah, they say sex is real on every fucking page. Um, and you saw a bunch of, you know, critical race theorists, probably activists and transgender queer community celebrating and like saying, fuck you, JK Rowling, which is just fun. They, they didn't read the opinion. Um, so like there's no, there's no problem there and no seepage there. The, the, sp- cause that one, yeah, they should have won that case. It was great. I wasn't worried. And I actually wasn't worried about it at all. That's why I'm actually still a little optimistic here that there's a line holding against this madness and it's in the courts and it's not budging at all. If the cases in Canada, those are those are borderline. Those are iffy. I, I'm wondering that, and I don't. Yeah, hate speech laws are weird. But let's talk about this one. If if um, transgender versus self-identifying your gender. If I say I'm a woman because I feel like a woman, and then I enter a weightlifting competition and I beat all the women, and there's prize money involved, and there's career this and et cetera involved. And then they sue based on, you know, the policies of the mm-hmm. thing uh, that that's what's coming. I think it's actually a track and field one that they're that they're worried about in Idaho. Um, but uh, that that one, I think, is is very it, I'll, I'll be worried. I, I think I'll be worried if the highest courts maybe I'm not as worried as like human rights councils or whatever in Canada. I'll be worried if the highest courts, especially in the United States, start to interpret because you know what's the complication here you're pointing to like hate speech laws and human rights tribunal which already are really badly written laws that that you know are are very but the constitution and the amendments here about discrimination based on race sex religion creed etc are so plainly written that if the definitions of race and racism that are so wrong and toxic that are going around the mainstream right now start to seep its way into the the bench that they interpret it that way, that you cannot have a racist policy if it discriminates against white people. Uh, that's when I'll be worried. I haven't seen any of that yet uh, in the States. Okay, uh, you haven't seen with it in the these States. kinds of interpretations. Yeah. But there, there was one thing in the States that really worries me. Again, it was the ACLU, and they defended yeah. they defended 
FGM on the basis of religious freedom. Now I get mm-hmm. the religious freedom argument there, right? But yet at the same yeah. time, you know, it's like Schroeder's, Schrodinger's religious freedom because at the same time they say it has nothing to do with Islam. Oh, no, that's my religious practice, right? So mm-hmm. which one is it? There's that. Yeah. And then the trans thing. Uh, I don't know if you saw the the whole thing around Maya Forestator in no. the UK. All right, so this is when J.K. Rowling first got involved in this. So she was, I can't remember where she works. Uh, I, I want to say it has something to do with biology. But she put out a tweet basically saying that Bill biological women are you know like biological men aren't women right like you cannot transition into a woman they're like it's not possible like you can change your gender not your sex basically type of thing right Mm -hmm. she got fired from her job so it went to the courts in the uk i don't think it was a human rights crowd it was like you know regular court the courts Mm -hmm. upheld the decision of her firing again this is the uk it's not united states but the aclu defending fgm as part of religious freedom because Okay, this is go- this goes back to cultural relativism, but I think the paper was in two thousand or two thousand one called a, a virtuous cut, and it's from mm. um, it's like a big university. I want to say Yale, but I could be wrong. But it's like a, you know Yale level university from their from their publications. It was you know, I guess one of their PhD students about how you know attacking FGM is colonialism and that's putting white values onto people and shit like that. So it's so yeah, I'd be mean, like in the courts. Yeah, if you got I- lawyers coming out thinking this way. Eventually discrimination you're... against, uh, but yeah, I think what we're discrimination against, like gender discrimination, and we mm. could talk of maybe it was a loophole because they realized that the people who originally wrote that um, term <laughs> sort of didn't have the foresight to realize how it would be challenged and separated from sex, and maybe they found a little loophole in there. Um, so I, I'm willing to, I'm willing to sort of. <sighs> fudge a little bit about about that if you fire someone on gender discrimination and we're saying you cannot fire someone based on their gender and you inter- and a court interprets that to be like well if gender means sort of self-identified you know how they want to be viewed in the community well then yeah okay if somebody comes to work and says i'm a woman today that's my gender and you uh, fire them because because of it uh, yeah, all right. Well, then you could see a court interpreting that. If you say sex or biological sex, which is, which is again, to give you some hope, the Supreme Court just wrote that. Yeah, I know. I saw, I saw that. And it's, and it's solid. Like, th- this is all, also the same. To bring in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, the, the gay wedding cake mm-hmm. case in Colorado, which, again, people just tend to look at, like, who wins the case and who voted, and then they start celebrating. Like, you've got to read the opinions. Yep. Anyone out there who, like, is interested in courts – read the opinion the whole thing is in the opinion you could have a nine to zero opinion that you think you agree or you vote that you think you agree with and then you read the opinion and you're like oh shit like it's they got it wrong read the opinion because in the masterpiece cake shop case it, this is why i said there was no difference like if you read the masterpiece cake shop case and how they wrote their their opinions uh this was obvious how they were going to decide this this recent one with the firing who i don't know the particular name of the case um the Masterpiece cake shop, cake shop case was a gay couple coming in asking for a wedding cake, a custom wedding cake. And this yeah. is what it all comes down to, which is actually fascinating. And the ruling it said, the reason that the, the shop won that case was a free speech issue, nothing to do with discrimination. In fact, in the ruling, they said you cannot discriminate against gay people. So they already made this ruling, this, yeah. this new one. That you, cannot disc- you cannot deny services that you would have given to a straight couple just because they're gay. Mm -hmm. You cannot. Meaning, when they came in and said, can you make us a cake? uh, 
the question was was not uh, is that a service you can offer? It's was is that compelled speech? Mm-hmm. What what the what they actually wrote and the cake shop said they did this whether they really did or not. They said no, you know I can't I can't practice my art. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if he says it. These were, yeah. I can't practice my art because I don't believe in this kind of thing and that's my free speech. Uh, so like I'm not going to apply my art to this. But what you can do is buy any cake that I've already made on the shelves because that is a service that I would mm-hmm. that if you denied saying that you can't you can't buy this thing that I already made on the shelf. Um, no, like that's not asking you to do speech. That's just commerce. And you cannot deny them that cake. So they actually they won the case the way they wanted to win. Um, it just was a compelled speech case. So yeah. the people celebrating that or the or the the gay community like disparaging that decision just didn't fucking read it. So so far at the highest courts, at least in America, where let's say, like you know, there's. There's madness happening here in the mainstream. Um, I haven't seen the cracks appear, thankfully, on on this side, which is very scary because you know Fox News is going to make it appear that every Democrat out there is an Antifa kid who wants to yeah. abolish the police and redefine this and that and have a million genders. And they're going to tell you, like, those people are going to be on the court soon. Um, and I, I, I'm frankly, thankfully... Not that worried about it. And the gender and sex thing is a particular case because of maybe that little loophole. Race, race is written in the Constitution and the amendments in a very obvious and specific way, but much better than like the Second Amendment with the gun one. This is a pretty obvious one. And so if they start saying things and writing opinions that say that start to sound like critical race theory, um, I'll be pretty terrified because if we lose our trust in those institutions, um, we're we're really screwed. Trust okay. in institutions in America is at an all-time low, but I want to give a little credit to the courts for now for holding the line. Keep a close eye on the courts if you're worried about this stuff. Feel free to send okay. me stuff and tell me I'm wrong. So well, far, they're holding. Let me scare you here this way. Right? So, <laughs> okay. The Supreme Court does not create the laws, right? Like it's, it's, the, the, it's the judicial branch interprets the law and the Supreme Court interprets the Constitution. Now, Amendments are there to be amended, and I know it's a really hard process. I'm not like, oh, just just change it. Like I, but now this stuff, critical race theory, is being taught K through 12 mm-hmm. at my last count in 16 states. Okay, a lot of universities, and I mean a lot. If you're watching them now, they're all putting in mandatory diversity trainings, which was already like before. I think it was like a, a day or two for students. Like I. I, I I'm not 100% sure, but now it's like a year-long diversity course for all freshmen and all students who are in now who haven't taken it have to take this course. So hmm. that's, you know, that's indoctrinating kids. If you saw the videos of the teenagers berating their parents, calling them racist, putting those videos out, the New York Times runs an article or an opinion piece telling you if grandma doesn't, and they, they said it, if grandma doesn't support Black Lives Matter, call her a racist. Okay, <laughs> so... Now, if you've got a generation of kids brought up thinking that way, they're going to go into law or forget mm-hmm. going into law and changing the court system, right? They're going to become voters. And if you get a critical mass of them and they push their, their representatives to change amendments, yeah. if the constitution's changed, the, the Supreme Court is only interpreting what's no, they, in front of them. Yeah, I, I'm not worried. Am I worried? So yes, I am scared. Let me let me put that out. I am scared. You don't need to like worry about scaring me about what's coming down the pipeline. And it, again, it is it is sort of, I'm giving sort of a um, a endorsement for lifetime appointees or long appointees for judges because they might be a little resistant to this stuff. So maybe we just haven't seen it yet because they're all 
fucking old and they haven't <laughs> died yet. I'm not, what I'm more scared about, and you sort of hinted at it, is that we don't need an amendment to change what the word race means in the Constitution. We're just nope. going to have a definition that becomes like, oh, that's what they said, which is then a little crazy. Because if you think the founders of this country who wrote that were thinking about, you know, race in the Crenshaw, like, you know, critical race, you'd be insane. Uh, Merriam-Webster uh, does. Merriam-Webster just changed it to the critical race definition. Which is, how, how are they defining it? I mean, I'm uh, I, I'd have to take a look, but it's, it's racism is uh prejudice plus basically power. prejudice plus power yeah i mean like that that's how the critical race theorists do it but yeah. i'm not i'm not 100 sure what merriam webster did but they yeah you know, they got petitioned well, the and they did it so the constitution is written and the amendments are written in a nice particular way where they are rights-based where it's yeah. not it's not racism is illegal and it says that nowhere in yeah. there it says you cannot be discriminated against or denied yeah. uh gosh i should get it right denied you know health and happiness yeah. and pursuit of happiness based on on your race um, so at least they wrote it in the rights-based way, where it should be a little uh, impervious to some of this stuff. Uh, no, I, okay, yeah, I'm worried about it enough. You don't need to scare me that it's like <laughs> com coming in this direction. But yeah. let me ask you another question about um, maybe to like give us a little more hope and stuff. I, I keep going back to how, and this is a really hard question to answer with the data, although it would be nice for someone to do the study, how much of what we're seeing is the normal kind of young, liberal, angsty, progressive teenager. I mean, we all were one of them at one time, yeah. um, but no one gave, no one cared about us because we didn't have the internet and we didn't have, like, no, we, our consumer power was pretty low. There was other things to worry about. And most of us, what's that famous quote? Like a conservative is a, is a liberal who got mugged by reality. Or yeah. Most of us, and I've done this before, let, let me do this one again, but most, most of us have, uh, we think our moral ideals and our utopian sort of teenage vision of the world is, is real and is strong and is achievable and we want something to fight against. There's a weird nostalgia and romanticism for the 60s and other movements where it feel, feels like they really were fighting against the tyranny right in front of their face. And so we're always looking for that. We always want to be the hero of the world. I think this is all beautiful, natural, rite of passage as a human kind of stuff. Most of us, let, let's just go with someone who goes through college and like me, becomes a filmmaker. Like I got a degree in film and I always knew I was going to have to do this balance of like, I can't just graduate college and then be the next Steven Spielberg. Like you take jobs for commercial co clients, you do what you can do, you pay the bills, you have to do this balance between your, um, you know, idealistic vision of your life and of yourself and the, the crushing practicalities of an economic capitalist system that we live in. And you're constantly playing this justification, consequentialism game in your head of a means to an end. Of, All right, I'll take this one job and then I'll get the money and I'll do something good with the money. And eventually, and, and then let's say you start climbing your, that career a little bit. I mean, my early jobs were making commercials for Minute Maid and Coca-Cola. <laughs> like, what you know, like I did with stuff that everyone else was doing. Yeah. And then some good ones. Every now and then you get like the American Red Cross. I did an ad for them. It's like, ah, cool. Like, this is a company to believe in. But you were taking a paycheck and trying to start a life. And then, you know, this didn't happen to me exactly. But if Philip Morris and the cigarette company comes along and was like, hey, we love your work. Let's say it happens now. Like you're on Instagram. You're like, we saw your Instagram feed. It's fucking great. Uh, we want to hire you to, you know, do an ad for us and we're going to pay you, you know, six figures, $150,000, which, you know, is a lot of money for a young 20 year old yeah. or whatever. And, and not a lot for Philip Morris. And then you're faced with like, holy shit, do I take the job? Most of us, I don't care what you felt like you thought and you believed in when you were 17 and you had a, and you had a mohawk and you were a punk rocker <laughs> about your ideals. 
it's very attractive and many of us i'm sort of lucky i could talk about my personal situation well lucky and unlucky when my dad died there, there's some inheritance and stuff like that i've always felt a little bit um uh immune to some of those and i feel privileged to be able to say no that's a kind of privilege actually that we don't talk about enough a privilege mm-hmm. to be able to say no to things that disagree with your your moral stance but most people aren't and many people aren't and if you say yes to philip morris you you suddenly start to understand a little bit more of that libertarian conservative you can you, you want to hold on to your ideals and your morals as a teenager so you do this thing that's saying like i'm going to take the money but the system itself produces the best outcome you become a consequentialist very quickly <laughs> you you leave your deontology very quickly you become a consequentialist so my question is to you are we amplifying and trapping unfortunately trapping i'm thinking of now like the the parkland kids from the shootings mm-hmm. uh david hogg and whoever are we trapping now like greta thunberg whatever are we trapping a lot of people in youth putting them on these pedestals when they're in that moment of an amber trapped in the amber forever of this idealism that is not very functional in the world that we have built maybe they're right and we could talk about philosophically if they're right but it's not very functional in the world and we make them influencers and we make them we give them tremendous power of boycott power over news agencies or whatever and suddenly cancel culture becomes mainstream like how much of this this is a genuine question how much of this is new in people's head, I know there's a cycle here that yeah. will amplify itself. There's a feedback loop, and how much of it is that we've actually given the mantle to people who aren't, including myself when I was a teenager. Holy shit, I wouldn't want me to be running the world when I was <laughs> okay. a teenager. Like, how much of it is just we're giving too much power and influence over people who are not really mugged by reality yet? Again, they might be right, but I wish some like me. I feel like I was mugged by reality, and now I'm in a process of discovering philosophy, of rediscovering my teenage wisdom and trying to marry it with my 20s commercialism and now in my 30s maybe there's another process coming for me um but there you go like okay i I think there's a lot there okay no but let's just take kids right like college students protesting and you know like high school seniors or whatever go back to the 60s now whether you you know you agree with okay it was a legitimate protest against the war they were protesting for you know civil rights all good things they were protesting for. Now, I would, I'm going to take a guess here. I don't have any you know, facts to back this up, but they weren't the engineering students. They weren't the science students. They weren't the physics students, right? There mm-hmm. probably were some you know, science students in there, but for the mo- most part, they were the history students, the philosophy students, you know, the law students, like the humanities students, right? They, mm-hmm. They're the ones who'd be learning. So, but they were, their protests were based on free speech on enlightenment values and you could show the deny you can show the denial of free speech you can show the denial of equality you know treating people equal so like there is no segregation that you can show all those inequalities based on the principles that you say that the country was built on right if you go to the 80s um when i was in like late 80s when i was starting college and stuff like that you know so we were protesting their kids were protesting apartheid oil companies is that fine again but it was then also based on facts and on enlightenment. But if you look at the videos that uh, Benjamin Boyce and Mike Nana did from Evergreen, if you looked at the video that Mike Nana was lucky enough to catch at Sarah Lawrence and then a few other schools, you can look at them. They're all from, you know, it's not the whole school, right? It's, it's again, it's the, if you look at Evergreen, it was the humanities, it was the arts department and the science department didn't really know what was going on. Like Brett Weinstein's class was still going mm-hmm. on when he got accosted, right? 
um, that for that video that went out. So what are they learning? They're learning this shit. Like, like this crap is infected a lot of the humanities. I'm not saying every sociology teacher is doing this. I'm not saying, but it's in the, it's in the air. It's in the water. It's, it's, it's so the kids all said, you taught us how to do this. Sarah Lawrence, they said the same thing. There's a school mm-hmm. in New York City that they did this, I think it was Vice or whatever, praising them in the, the elementary school. And they're talking about, we don't, we're not educating the kids. We're teaching them how to be activists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, know, yeah. you, you yeah. don't teach K through 12 how to be activists. You know, like, so there is a problem there. Like kids being kids and protesting and fighting the man. Yeah. That's, that's, you know, punk. Well, so, I mean, I think, I think we're sort of agreeing there. Of, yeah. Like we can, we can blame like the, the theory and the, and the, the pseudo academics for fueling this fire, but plus social media mm-hmm. is a huge deal. And plus the just like, you know, insane media and, Plus that a lot of the a lot of the problems in the sixties were it just were addressed. <laughs> you know, it's it's hard to figure out what to protest against these days. But kids feel like they yeah. have to protest against something. And I and I think that's fine because the world the world is not perfect. And we should always be fighting for a more perfect world and a more perfect thing. I don't know. I mean, I was thinking as you were answering that, um, if you had a time machine and you brought a bunch of those kids from the sixties, if they would be totally at odds with the evergreen kids now they might they might fall in line they I, might be very they might be very quick to sort of um i, I don't i don't think so i i mean i i think no because the okay the, the, yes there was the postmodernism in the 60s you had you know the frankfurt school starting up in the 30s whatever you had that you know neo-marxism you had that stuff in the 60s as well but you also had a lot of very principled people talking about free speech you know and, and embracing the enlightenment well, the what critical- you've had, I mean, t- to your point, and this is, this is actually a really, this is a big point. This is probably the same point. I think what you're missing here is, I don't think the kids are all that different now. And I honestly don't even think, like having the academic theory gives them a lot of like bullets in their guns, which is fucking crazy. And I agree with you. But I think the emotions of the kids, I don't think are that different. What, what's missing here are leaders. And the, when we keep talking about the 60s and you're talking about free speech and people advocating for this or that or whatever, we're thinking of Martin Luther King. We're thinking of the people leading the speeches. We're thinking even of, of protest music. We're thinking of Bob Dylan. We're thinking of these things. We have none of that now. This is a leaderless oh, yeah. movement. There's, there's, there's. And so I, I, think, I think that element and why it's a leaderless movement is, I think, because social media, everybody's trying to be the leader every, and everybody can be. There, there are no moral voices reigning in the crazies of it. I'm sure there were there was revolutionaries who were crazy and Marxists and communists who were marching with Martin Luther King, but you didn't really hear about him because we didn't have that many cameras around. No. <laughs> and you pointed him at the guy who was leading it, and he said the speech, and you had people talking to him, and he was sort of leading it, and people, I'm sure people disagreed, and they sort of fell in line. Um, the Malcolm X story with it, I think, I think is a, a really uh, interesting and fascinating one. You saw me po- posting some stuff worrying the tragedy that Malcolm X was killed in the middle of clearly what was an intellectual maturity for him in a process and he never got to do it is something is, is really something to talk about and something we should get into. Um, but I, I, I think what might really yeah be behind that is the leaderlessness of it. I think fueling a movement or a poster or a Black Lives Matter or this or that or whatever um, is uh, – is, is problematic, of course, because we don't you don't know what you're signing up for. When grandma, if grandma answered the question, I don't know if I support the movement. What like what is it? 
how would the grandchild even answer? This is that whole awful scene. You know, you know what I'm thinking of, of the mayor of Minneapolis, where the woman was uh, who I don't know who she was, but organically became the voice of that little mob and said something like, will you defund the police? And clearly his first question was like, what do you what do you mean? And then she said, we don't want no police. And he's like, well, again, you can't hear him. But he's like, well, if that's your definition, no, I'm not going to abolish the police. And then it was suddenly a mob and booing him or whatever. And nobody corrected her nobody thoughtful was standing there being like this is what we mean because you and i both know if it's like oh you know what that's a slogan we have what we mean martin luther king would have done this he would have said something like you know we need to rethink policing in this country and like we need community programs and we need things for the kids to do after school and we want to redirect funds and blah. and the mayor would have said cool i'm on board and everybody would have cheered because he was literally the next day he signed up for the the much more uh, you know uh, palatable version of defund the police, which is the like yeah rethink where the funding goes and and push back against the police unions that have too much power, et cetera. Great, we need to do all that stuff. But I, I think what's um, it would be nice if we had leaders of this movement. I don't know how leaders organically come out of movements anymore. I can't even remember the last one um, and where it might come from. And but, who's failing here? But that's yeah. again part of their mentality, right? Like if you look at the Occupy thing, that was rudderless. Yeah, that that's why job. that's yeah. why it just completely fell apart. They didn't have one cohesive goal. You know, uh, they had. You know, you, you don't raise your hand. You you snap your fingers. I mean, like those are little stupid rules that you can make fun of, right? That that's just the window dressing. But yeah. there were there was no. So here's. Leader. That, that what you said there though is what I also worry about. You, do you know Ross? Do, what's his? I can never pronounce his last name. Duthat, Duthat, Ross. He's a he's a philosopher. He's written a few books. He's he's uh, Catholic. Um, I was listening with my girlfriend actually on a drive down here. We're on a well, we're, I'm in Florida. For anybody listening on a rescue mission, they bring my mom back up to the safety zone <laughs> from coronavirus. Um, but we were listening to his conversation with Ezra Klein. It was sort of interesting. But it, I guess he's written a book and I haven't read it all about the decadent society and. When you bring up the thing about a specific goal, we talk about this a lot. Like, what's the goal of this movement? Um, is there a specific goal here? This is going to loop back to the other deeper philosophical things we were talking about earlier. And in the 60s, if it felt like the goal here, let's talk about Vietnam, was end the war in Vietnam. It was like, you, you can define this will be a successful movement when the troops from the U.S. come home. And, and by that measure, then they succeeded and they feel like they, they, did, they did the right thing, like you're saying, enacted their free speech, put the right pressures on, got the troops home, success, everyone went home and had kids in the suburbs. Um, then the civil rights movement, if Martin Luther King, let's even go back further, like the women's suffrage movement. It's very clear. It's like we want the vote. When we get the vote, we will have succeeded. The, the earlier move, then, then the, the blacks getting the vote with, with Frederick Douglass leading a lot of that charge. When we get the vote, we have won. So it's like a, looking back in history, it's sort of like you can you can collapse the whole movement to a specific thing they were fighting for, and then they got it or they didn't get it, and that's the story of history. What this and now, I don't think they can find a specific thing to ask for, because the thing that they want to ask for is so amorphous yeah, and is well, so deep and goes back to the things and this but i'm not even blaming them because i don't know what they should ask for if you're asking me if you want one thing to ask for it's end the war on drugs but they, but they don't want to they don't they don't want to do something so specific because i think if there's like a complaint box for the universe or for countries or nations or society it's stuffed right now with a million different things that you could kind of tie together um to just this and this is the decadent society kind of thing with this general kind of like um is this all there is? Is this as good as we can do? 
you know, why is it still unequal outcomes? Uh, you know, it, it's almost a religious kind of decadent society of when when a lot of things are when Steven Pinker's graphs are going in the right direction, but you still feel a little unsatisfied. And we could talk about, you know, why I love philosophers like Hannah Arendt and not anti-enlightenment philosophers, but counter-enlightenment philosophers who wanted to, to uh, question and criticize the meaning-making apparatuses or the meaning-squashing apparatuses of things like capitalism. I think those kinds of things are, they're so amorphous and they're so deep, but they're so spiritual in a way and cosmic that people are, are struggling with and you don't know what you don't know what to fight against. What are you going to ask for? Is yeah, it like, I know, but what I are you going to ask for? Give me meaning in my life? I can't put that on a sign. But in some deep way, that's, I think, what we're after here. Uh, yeah, but I mean, okay. I, I employed Chloe uh, Valdery for a conversation with black athletes, which was really fun to produce. Oh. And she did great. And she she has this school called The Theory of Enchantment. Yeah, she's um, awesome. That is, yeah, and it's a lot about, like, getting to this level of analysis of how do we, and this is going to go maybe to the very deep, but when we were talking earlier about why they are afraid of science as a method, for very obvious reasons, because the beast that is, that is in the bottom of every conversation and in every spreadsheet here is the beast of trying to get those two things to agree. All men are created equal, but all men are not, do not, do not have equal abilities. How do you get them to okay, agree? You know, That's the beast. And atheism, true atheism, science as a way to get to it is, is and philosophy, let's say it, is the way to try to contend with that, and they've rejected it for a religious, a religious notion. And I, I, I sympathize with that, but it, that's the big monster underneath all of this. Can I, that's the level that I want to address with. Can I offer you something for all men are created equal? Instead of saying all men are created equal, which it's yeah. all men are created with equal worth. So, yes, like, that's great. Okay, the I think that's what it means. Okay, but that's the, so if you add that, you know, one word. And then you could then you could show like okay yes, just because you are born um, you know paraplegic doesn't mean you don't have the same in, intrinsic worth like yes you you won't be able to run a marathon, right. but you know you might design the the next super collider right you, mm -hmm. th there's worth there, um, so I think I mean I obviously we can't go back and ask Franklin but I th I think that's mm -hmm. kind of what he meant was yeah, yeah. you are created with you know, equal potential, equal, not even potential. I don't even say that because that puts, you know, I'm not equal to, you know, Usain Bolt, like not at all. Right. <laughs> like, you know, but so like, you know, but the value of your life is equal to the value of everyone else's life. And then no one should impede you from trying to live out your dreams. But I mean, obviously it has to be within reason. Like, you know, like I said, I'm never going to run as fast as Usain Bolt and I can do whatever I want unless, you know, I, I become the $6 million man, right? Get some bionic <laughs> legs in me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I, I mean, the other word in, in the sentence that's really important is created because it, it implies sort of step one or moment one of a life. And there is this immediate and eternal, let's call it infinite value to this thing called experience and thing called life that is imbued in the thing, but it's created and it's just the start, which, which, mm -hmm which will not get you equality of outcome, no. but it gets you, it gets you equality of opportunity and starting point, which we also do not have. I mean, the, the Occupy thing is such an unfortunate failure because I, I remember I was a little younger and I would go to it. I was observing it. I wasn't a part of it. Um, the energy was right. And the conversation about inequality in particular, a lot of it was expressed in income at that point or just wealth, 
wealth creation, not not money, but wealth, um, wealth concentration was right. And we actually it, that movement failed hard. Like it got worse, much worse since the Occupy movement. And I feel like that's also frustrating. I mean, yeah, the parallels between what's happening now and what happened with Occupy are, are understated. They should, be, they should be mentioned much, much more. It's the same kind of angsty energy of like, great, you're right, this is fucked up. What are we gonna fix? And they're like, we don't know and we don't know where to start, which is why having a leader would be incredible. Like, I don't know who could get up there right now in the Black Lives Matter movement. And be that leader. I don't see anybody rising to that to that podium. But if it was someone who could say, like, you know, you're this is all right. Like this racism thing is a problem. Racism is real, mm-hmm. and we're still dealing with it. And I hear I hear that you're hurting out there. Where are we going to start? Let's start here. War on drugs, or this and that, or whatever. Like, there's a million places to start, and I don't think they know where to start. And I don't, I don't think they're going to get anywhere and they might, this is the danger is they're, they're going to make a huge mess. And unfortunately I think it's a huge mess that's going to hurt themselves more than anything else. And the data could help you figure out where to start. You could yeah. do the kind of adult data analysis if you want to start somewhere. Okay. But here's the other thing before you answer, because there's another psychological and philosophical thing that we're dancing around here is of the notion of, um, the victimhood narrative and needing a problem to solve as a human and the fear and this has always also been the problem with the reparations conversation is what happens the next day if we do it does that mean the victimhood narrative is now erased and you can and and we're good it doesn't seem that way when your identity and this this is this ties into a lot of things you said when your identity is completely intertwined and defined with and by a victimhood narrative that and that's where you're actually deriving your meaning from in the universe is being a victim of a system that's a very scary and dangerous place to be because then what happens when you solve it you've lost all the meaning in your life like do we need if you need a victimhood narrative in order to get meaning out of the the world um then we've made a a, a huge a huge mistake and and the and the problem is not the problem the philosophical truth is on some cosmic level we are all victims of being in a universe which we did not ask to be in that is very confusing and very chaotic and very scary and very weird and very beautiful and very a lot of things. And that should be a kind of universal victimhood narrative that actually binds us together. That would be like a super myth that actually I could would get behind that, you know, it's 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 a it's a victimhood narrative with only but opportunity to solve against it. And that's sort of the deep fighting against God and redefining the world we want to live in. But just on a, on a smaller national micro level, if your entire existence is based on being uh, a victim of a problem, then you will not solve that problem. And you are disincentivized from solving that problem. So I, this is the disingenuousness. Do we really think the Black Lives Matter movement wants to solve the problem of racism? Because if they actually do, then what is there left to fight for? And this is, this is a very hard philosophical and psychological problem to, to contend with. Like the leaderless thing that they, okay, I don't know who could come up and I don't know who they would accept because, again, part of the their thing is it's, you know, your personal narrative is what's right. And so if your leader gets up and they don't say exactly what you want, I mean, it, it was Slate, so take it for what you will. So last year, they wrote an article panning Robin DiAngelo saying she's, 
using her whiteness to promote herself through white fragility, blah, 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 and it doesn't do enough, right? So, like, who's going to be the leader there? But, but when you bring up the drug thing, okay, like, just, just take the drug war for a second. Oh, there's, you know, too much policing because they're being racist against black people. Okay, go back to the crack days of the 80s, and I know the drug war predates that, but that's when it really, you know, Nancy Reagan, just say no, all that stuff that started. Mm-hmm. You had black mayors, black governors, black police chiefs, mm-hmm. Democrats, begging for more policing, because I'm not saying that's the right way yeah. to deal with drugs. Maybe that's the right way to deal with the gangs. It shouldn't have been policing for drugs. It should be health care or, you know, mm-hmm. other things along those lines, you know, psychological, whatever, right? It's 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 a more of a health issue than it is a policing issue. Gangs is a policing issue, but like all this stuff came in because people were asking because it's you were looking at the wrong thing. It's like okay, we'll stop drugs by stopping the gangs, but you're stopping gangs, you're not stopping drugs. It's right. you're looking at the secondary issue. I'm not saying gangs is not a big thing. Like you didn't like I I remember all the bloods and the crips and all that. Then you had the white supremacist blowback to that in the early nineties. And that's where you get like American history X and all yeah. that like that. But you know, so you had all that stuff come out, but well, if, if they deny science, yeah, but that's just it. Like the, the yeah. system, if you ask them, what's the system you want to break down, it's the whole system that we have. It's the enlightenment. Yeah. So that's the system. Yeah. So if that's their demand, I'm no, sorry that that's, you know, where are you going to go with that? Like there's a conference in Johannesburg, 2016 science must fall. <laughs> Yeah. It was the philosophy department against the science department. At hmm. one point, one of the people in the philosophy department said, why do we need this European science? Our shaman can call lightning down on people. Yeah. I mean, come on. Like, like how the, how am I, what am I going to argue with there? Zeus, Zeus, Zeus-ish, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, well, you know, so if that's what they want, then no. I, like, I, again, I support Black Lives Matter as a statement. Like, yes, Black Lives Matter. I'm not going to argue with that. I'm not going to, you know, policing well, needs... Want- yeah, policing I mean, needs. Yeah, like maybe I'm too I'm too charitable, but I don't. They can say they want that. I don't think they want that. I mean, I don't think they. I don't think they'll like that if they get that. Obviously, I, I mean, they won't. But yeah, they they won't because you can't do anything. You can't solve any problems if you actually deny science. If we're saying science and philosophy and let's say rejections of authoritarian, uh, exclusive claims to knowledge or whatever is generally the Enlightenment. Um, you won't solve you won't solve any problems if you can't find reality, and science is our way to find reality. But what again, as as a counter enlightenment philosopher fan that I am, what I what I think they want is meaning, and what they want to bring down is a system where they feel like they don't have any place in it, and they don't get any meaning out of it in the way they want, and then the danger is fueling that. Of of course the victimhood narratives that the, if your meaning is being a victim this is not going to go well. But I want to give maybe to step back away from the woke kids who are are obviously just plainly a problem and we both agree with that. But if there were some kind of interesting and good movement in a response to like you're saying the enlightenment or science, it's that science and the enlightenment has failed to deliver. Um, maybe the kind of meaningful life that a lot of people are after. Certainly in the economic sphere, if all we're saying is that at its most benign, the Enlightenment should have been and is a way to clear the way 
for people to find their own meaning, meaning we're going to be really good about getting a, you know, getting you fed and getting houses for everybody using this system of free markets and whatever else. Uh, but then it's up to you to find life. Um, I think that's fine. And it's done incredibly well there, but unequally, it's not distributed the way it ought to be. And, and we, we need to work on the inequality of just that, although it's getting better everywhere, as we know. Um, but then what, you know, is that it? is like, well, if it's up to me, how can I get from here to a meaningful life? Even if everything's very comfortable around me, is that it? And people are, again, this is sort of like the theory of enchantment stuff, but people are, are looking for those answers um, and deciding that the system itself is, is uh, blocking them from finding those answers in some real way that they think if they can take it down, then suddenly, I don't know, everything will be will be fine. It's it's a counter, it's an anti-enlightenment movement. It's a counter-enlightenment philosophy that should be fueling it, which is about fixing it, which is about yeah. not being com- becoming Saeed Qutb. Let's, let's talk about Saeed Qutb, who started the Muslim Brotherhood yeah, in Egypt. Okay. But, right, okay, he comes but, to America. Yeah, go on. I mean, if people don't know the story, yeah. the short version is he comes to Colorado yeah. expecting to find sort of a beautiful life. It doesn't. This beautiful utopian doesn't decides this is all debauchery and this meaningless vapidness in American capitalism. And decides then, as a as a anti enlightenment, that Islam must be the answer, is and squashes all of that. It's hard, to, and the outcome that you see today is the Taliban and ISIS. Yes, is the so so that's what the fear. And I, I agree with you. I don't think. Hopefully, we don't see a Taliban here of woke kids. Okay. But that's the same problem that we're dealing right, with. Yeah. Okay, I, I have a different worry about that. But okay, so this leadership, this you know, like lack of leader, lack of meaning. Okay, yeah. So here's the thing. If you want to, I don't believe in the 1619 thing, but so after the American Revolution, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the Constitution and the idea that was America was to build a country based on the Enlightenment, right? Like they took the British and the French Enlightenment and they merged it and Payne, you know, Payne and Jefferson, all that, and they came up with an American Enlightenment. And if that's the story that you want to give, that's the meaning that you want to give people like that, that, you know, you're not held together by your belief in God. You're not held together by your, you know, your country you come from. This ideal that everyone is created with equal worth. Everyone has a right to voice their opinions. You don't, you know, like that's the, that's the story that should have been sold. Now, so fine. That was sold to white people. Mm-hmm. Obviously it wasn't sold to the slaves and it still wasn't sold to the slaves after the civil war. Like I can't yeah. remember who it was. Um, there was, there were three States that still had slavery. After the Civil War, and there were northern states, it was Maryland, Delaware, and I'm trying to remember, and it was it took an act of Congress to get those um, uh, slavery taken away there, right? So, then you look at the, you know, the, the slave, uh, the anti-slave laws, like the anti-black laws and Jim Crow and all that stuff. So, that story wasn't given to black people, right? It might have been given to immigrants, it might have been given to, you know, a black family from Nigeria once they got here, but black people who lived here historically, that really wasn't, like, they were told it, but they weren't shown it. It was like... Ho Chi Minh, uh, you mm-hmm. know, the, the French, you know, uh, fraternity, uh, fraternity, liberté, égalité, like, you know, fraternity, uh, liberty, and, and equality. They, yeah. The, the, the Indochina, you know, like the Vietnamese and the Korean, like, you know, in Indochina, they didn't see that. In Algeria, they didn't see that, right? They were treated as something different. So they took those ideas and whatever, Ho Chi Minh and what happened in Algeria was wrong, but like, you can go on and that stuff, but. Like I said, the kids here weren't. But then I think again, if you go back to around the late '90s, people were starting to see. You know that I'm, you know, in the '90s when you had you were you were getting like 
the first generation or the first real generation of black millionaires who were actually complaining about the estate tax, right? Mm-hmm. You never had that happen before. Um, so like, you know, things were getting better. And then there's that, like, I'll, I use this, it's, this is cliche and I used it, you know, like the African proverb there, the child who's not embraced by the village will burn it down to feel its warmth. Mm. Since the '90s, like this stuff has been in colleges. In 2012, Coleman Hughes, like I heard him, like you know Coleman, like I heard him talking with I can't remember who he was talking with, but he said, you know, in 2012, he was introduced to intersectionality in high school. So that, yeah. So you know, so you've got a generation of kids who've t- been told that either a that the village does not love them and is doing everything it can to h- kill them, and then the, another set of kids told him, you're the pr- you're the reasons why those p- kids are like that, and it's your fault. Like that, mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw that picture of that young girl in the UK. I think she looked about five or six and she's holding up a sign. It says privilege pointing up towards her. <laughs> and the look on her face is so horrific. Like, I don't know what her mother told her or her father told her to hold that sign up. But that kid looked like she was ready to break down and cry. Yeah. And that's that, that, like, that could have been straight out of Jesus camp. Yeah. Okay. Like there was another one. There's a little black girl. She's maybe nine years old. She's bawling her eyes out that she's going to get killed because of the color of her skin. It's like okay, well, like you said, the data. Let's look at the data. Then you know, you're, if you're going to get killed, it's more than likely going to be because of by someone with the same color of skin as you. Yeah, right? of course. Yeah. So, like the media and education, and you know, I'm a big fan of education. I'm a big fan of hmm. a good media, like you know, like informative media. But if that's what they're dealing, then there, there's a huge problem here. Like you can't. Now again, like I said, this is K through twelve. You know, I brought up the Crips and the Bloods and the Skinheads and like, who do they go after? The disenfranchised. Who does ISIS go after? You know, like they, they go after the loner kids, the ones who are feeling marginalized, the ones that are feeling put upon. Mm-hmm. And you're creating a generation that's going to feel like either you're the cause of them and or you being punished by them. I mean, I, I, one sorry, one last little thing. Like uh, yeah. a, f- a friend of Faisal's, I think you know him as well. Like Mookie. Yeah, I, I don't know if you read his article in Medium like earlier no, this year. Okay, it was earlier this year. It was late last year. He was talking about his kids, and they came home, uh, and they were complaining that they wish they weren't half white. Oh God, okay, yeah. that's not a good thing. No, no, no. <laughs> okay, so that like, like, what do they want? And they're being told to want the wrong thing. They're being told what they want, not being taught how to decide for themselves what they want. And that's a huge problem. Yeah, well, it's indoctrination for sure. I mean, I they might succeed in burning it down one day. And and I think like we will it'll be a shame and we we'll, I think they'll reinvent it in the same way. It's hard to imagine different structures like abolishing the police yeah. and then realizing you need to call someone when there's a problem and then you need to trust someone and you need to arm them because we have guns here. like it, you just it's like i think there was a south park about this where like they get they get rid of like government or something at the beginning of the episode but the end they're like i have an idea let's all elect someone and like anyway yeah. they reinvent government like the, some of these <laughs> systems feel like inevitable natural systems that they'll reinvent i do wonder i mean i i wonder I want, I don't know what, there's some things that they say are true that come out of critical race theory and all that kind of stuff. And, and I don't know what it's like to be a black person in this country. I have no idea. And I wonder what it's like. I think John McWater said this actually in a conversation with Cornell West, which was about reparations. And he had a really beautiful line because he's so lovely with language. And he said something like, it would be nice to feel whole. And this was about reparations. This is John McWater, who's not a fan of classic reparations, as you know, and has his head on his shoulders. And it it was a great line that stuck with me that somehow 
because he's so good at it, like brought me in for a moment to try to understand his experience as a black man in this country and all that. It would be nice to feel whole. And I, you know, I, again, I probably give too much credit. I totally agree with you on all of these ridiculous theories and outcomes. You're spending more time sort of like with the James Lindsay, like understanding the theory than I do. I'm like, I don't even want to look at it because I trust that it's insane. And every now and then I peek under the hood and I'm like, okay, yeah, someone else look at that. I've got other things to do. Um, but I, I'm always trying to get under of like, wh what are they attracted to? What's really going on here? And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know what it's like to be, let's, let's try this. We're both sort of fans of superhero movies or cartoons uh -huh. and that kind of mythology and stuff. And I'm, I'm trying to have a conversation about, uh, black Panther. I've been struggling to write a converse, uh, a article about black Panther for what, like four years now since it came out. Cause it struck me so obviously about what it was. I don't think it was a tremendous superhero movie, but it was, I thought it was, it was something that happened in it with the two characters. This is going to be spoiler alerts all throughout this mm -hmm. if nobody's seen it, but it felt so familiar as the superhero arc. Actually, let's talk about X-Men first, because it's not about race in particular. The origin story of X-Men, if you, if you know it or don't know it, is Professor X and Magneto are sort of the two forces of the, the villain and the, and the mastermind of the good guys. The X-Men is Professor X, Xavier, and the bad guy is Magneto. By the end, he's a bad guy, but he's a complicated bad guy because it's written well. And it's sort of about what every superhero and villain... Um, dichotomy and balance is about it always resurfaces of this good versus evil but it always at the beginning the, the origin story of magneto is he's a jewish kid guy i won't get his name right you might know it. he was a jewish kid in auschwitz i think it was auschwitz or the warsaw ghetto whatever it was he was being terrorized and grew up uh in the warsaw ghetto or, or, or somewhere in you know nazi europe as as it was rising and he discovers his power for the very first time his power it turns out is bending metal with you know, magnetism with his mind and with his hands and also he has tel telepathy. But um, while he's like being ushered into these like Nazi sort of like, I think they're getting on trains. I don't know how it was in the original book, but they're being ushered away and obviously being taken away clearly to their deaths. And there's all this trepidation that they know what's about to happen. And he's with his mom. And then at some point, some of the Nazis start to split. I th think it's the men and the women and the mom is being pulled away. And Magneto is, is a young boy at the time, like a young teenager. And he starts freaking out because he's being separated from his family. Of course, this is fucking terrible. And he starts crying and, and, and yelling. And all these Nazi guards come over to hold him. And she's being separated from him in this other line. And there's like a metal gate between them. And he's crying and screaming. And he's reaching. And his, like, and his, and his hand is going out. And, he's, and the metal starts to bend of this gate that he's not even near. And it's this insane power that's like morphing. And he's like, now there's like six Nazi guards holding him in place when he's discovering this power. But... You know, eventually, one of them, I think, smashes his head with a with a butt of a gun and he collapses and passes out and then he falls and the magnetism is released and his mom is taken away. So his origin story is fucking terrible. A victim, right? An actual victim of the ugliest unleashing of human prejudice and racism and tribalism and horror that we're capable of. And he saw that. Professor X, meanwhile... Because a boy named Xavier who grows up in Westchester, New York in a very fancy house and he's very privileged. He's a white boy and grows up in this way and also realizes that he's a mutant in this world and has telepathy and is very strong. But he realizes the humans of this world are, are not a fan of mutants and there's this they want to get rid of mutants and they're all sort of facing racism. So they're both a malign group of mutants. And you've got one Professor X who grew up with this sort of privileged life and one Magneto who grew up seeing horrible acts of humans. 
And Professor X decides he needs to save humanity and teach them out of their, their terrible ways or whatever, and they're worth saving, even though they constantly kind of hate mutants and do these terrible things. He believes they're worth saving, and he gathers all these mutants together to try to save them and teach them things and rescue the world, while Magneto, for a little bit, flirts with that, but constantly sees the ugliness in humans and decides, fuck it, we're going to burn them down, and we're going to crush them, and the mutants are going to take over. And you have this beautiful philo- philosophical, you know, baseline at the bottom are of like are is this worth saving is what, is what we're doing worth saving you also see the same kind of superhero villain interaction with like joker and batman and then in i'll do this quickly i know but in black panther the same thing happens in a very obvious way with race where there's two brothers who get separated when they're kids one who grows up to become killmonger in oakland and the other one goes back to wakanda as the rightful um to chill, I think his name is in, in, yeah. the, in the story, as the rightful prince and king of Wakanda and, and sort of becomes the Professor X, as it were. Well, the kid who gets left in Oakland grows up seeing genuinely crappy conditions and plenty of racism and plenty of inequality and police brutality and whatever else. And we could talk about whether that was fair or exaggerated, but certainly saw rough things and dark sides of humanity where the prince of Wakanda sees kind of this amazing life and has this sort of privileged thing. And they grow up and of course Killmonger realizes he's probably the rightful heir to the throne as the brother and comes back to Wakanda to rule. And they have this power, just like the mutants and X-Men, they have the superpower um, of all of this amazing technology they have. And Killmonger basically decides these humans who wronged me so much are not worth it. We're going to burn them all down and kind of take over and use these weapons to, like, you know, tear shit up. While uh, T'Challa, the Black Panther character, is very much the Professor X of, like, no, they're worth saving. And it's it's a sort of really fascinating international relations movie about maybe joining the world and using our technology for good and helping everybody. And in the end, again, spoiler alert, in the end... To win that film, to that movie ends with Killmonger realizing that that he has to die in order for this thing to actually succeed, and he does. I'm again ruining it here, but Black Panther has to kill him in order to try to enter the world without burning it down in this way. And when I, I remember watching that movie in the theater, and my jaw was on the floor, being like, "Is I was the only white guy in the theater. I saw. I didn't see it when it first came out. It was a few other black fa- families and black kids. And I was looking around, being like, "This is, this is like, this is a sort of an amazing political message." Very much to me, the Martin Luther King versus Malcolm X conversation happening again on that screen. Malcolm X was was very violent, literally praising God for plane crashes early in his career that killed white people, like crazy killmonger kind of stuff, and also saw terrible conditions growing up. Um, so that movie now, I don't know, I don't know how it was missed or why it wasn't talked about enough. I, I failed to write about this because I just didn't know how to do it. I want to still have a conversation about it with people. Um, but seems to be the like the same classic superhero conversation of you've seen bad things, you've you are a victim in some ways, and people are capable of terrible things. Are you going to love them and try to help them, or are you going to burn it all down and hate them? And what we're it seems to me there's so much hate and resentment, maybe rightfully so in some way that I wrote about in my article, like this general what it's like to be a black man in a country that brought you and your well not you but your ancestors here by force like there there's anger there that analogizes itself to killmonger 
and we could give into that. They could give into that in the movement and be and burn it all down. And it seems like that is winning the conversation right now over Black Panther, which is like you have to. It might be a justifiable, but we have to kill that part of ourselves in order to really enter the world and do good. And I'm not saying it's easy. I don't know if, to add one more thing. I don't know if you saw that viral video that went around of the three black men in the middle of the protest when they first started of three generations. One was like a 45 year old man, mm-hmm. one was like a 31 year old and one, it was this kind of amazing moment. Someone just filmed it on their cell phone. If nobody's seen it, you should look it up. It's sort of beautiful. 45 year old dude, he's like wearing a wife beater and he looks fucking pissed. He's like angry, he's yelling like, let's go in there. I think they wanna like loot something or do some violence. The 31-year-old dude is sort of in the middle trying to calm him down, being like, don't do it. Like, you know, we can't be angry like this. And then he pulls in this kid, like from off the screen, who's like, who is also young, very tall, like teenage black boy. And he says, like, look at him. He's 16. And it's very emotional. Yeah, I've seen this one. You've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. And he says, like, um, we need to do better. And he's looking at the kid being like, you don't want to be me in 15 years and you don't want to be him in 20 years or, or 30 years or whatever however old the guy was like you need to figure something out and do better and this is the challenge of like holy shit that's sort of killmonger and like you hope this kid is black panther and not killmonger but i am with you that we are fueling that generation with a bunch of very dangerous philosophy and fraudulent academic crap that seems to be rooting for him to be killmonger which is so damn wrong and and yeah. like you're saying a crime to him the kid holding the sign like wh- like how are we missing it that bad how are we we missing the lessons that are all around us throughout history of like no don't be joker be batman no don't be Magneto, you know, be professor x no don't be killmonger be black panther which is a lovely empowering <clears throat> amazing thing that you're allowed to keep your identity and your pride and everything but don't burn it down even though slavery happened even though the war on drugs is bullshit even though there's been redlining don't burn it down help us fix it and you could be a part of that conversation and it's and it's i I don't know i mean it's it's um no but it's it is depressing we need black panther to be our leader (laughs) i gave the answer the fictional character but but it is it is depressing right like it's do you want to hear what's depressing about that one more thing before i I am gonna let you answer it but stan lee wrote that of course a white man so already there is like well that's a white version of sort of the way you should interact with the world which scares the hell out of me yeah but like but but, but that's what it is right like okay wanting to tear down okay the the emancipation uh statue uh, you know, in Lincoln Park in DC, they want to tear that down, right? There's a congresswoman who wants to pass legislation to have it torn down. Eesh. Okay, yeah. now it w- people are like always paid for by slaves. I'll give you my best critical race theory objection <laughs> to that. Okay, and, 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 and okay. try it. it yeah. like, uh, you know, whatever you, you can run it by James Lindsay or something, or you can run it by a critical <laughs> race theorist to see how right I am on this. The slaves were taught to obey their masters and to please their masters mm. right that's what the slaves knew you know 1619 to 1865 or whatever right that, that's what they knew and they were only taught that so that's all they know that's the world they know that's what, that's what this world wants so by collecting money to raise this statue they're showing love for their white masters because they're showing their masters that they're appreciated that they were quote unquote set free and so that right. statue is just a perpetuation of whiteness because it's black people agreeing that this was, you know, like, like you know, they're, they're still being subservient. They're still thanking. And you all know, look at Lincoln's got his hand over this black man and this black man's kneeling down. But it's like, okay, but he's looking up. And he's got broken chains. I mean, whatever, right? Like, 
there there's a plausible critical race explanation for why that statue is racist and why it perpetuates whiteness and why it's anti-black and it needs to be taken down because the slaves who did it that's the thinking that they have i mean this stuff is so so ridiculous if you have a panel and you want to say okay we need a diverse panel so you have one panel with 50 people every demographic you can think of right and one straight white male or one straight white person forget even male the other panel is all black 50 black people Mm. the all black will be more diverse because they say white people are everyone thinks white people are superior so they will hold themselves servient if you have one white person on that panel everyone will start thinking white I mean, it's so fucking insulting. That's insulting to me. It's insulting to everyone on that panel. It's like saying you have no mind of your own. Like like this thing of like, you know, science is a white way of knowing. Like reason is a white way of knowing. Like, no, come on. Next time you call Microsoft and get help from Dave, that sounds a lot like Raj from the Big Bang Theory. Think about that. And yeah. like, it's, it's, but like, it, so the, the stuff is, I mean, it's. Well, do you think it'll pass? I agree with you. Obviously. I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's been around it's, for, it's. A, it's it's been around it's for a resent. It's a movement of resentment. It is the killmonger resentment. He had to to die in that movie um, to get past it. Okay, but I mean, do you think do you think the good guys will win? <laughs> I mean, right now, like I, yeah, I don't I don't see I don't see the academy lasting. I do not see universities lasting. Like the, the, there's a guy at UBC who, uh, oh, Yasmin shared this with me. She saw it. Um, he had to quit because of liking the wrong tweets, not even tweeting anything, not even yeah, retweeting, yeah, yeah, liking. Li- liking the wrong tweets. You know, like... Yeah. Yeah, no, it's... You know, it's, um, it's, it's, it's getting out of hand. And, okay, you were talking about don't burn it all down. I keep seeing... I keep thinking of Weimar Germany. Like, mm-hmm. you mentioned Hannah Arendt. Read up yeah, Hannah yeah. Arendt. Like, I mean, yeah. you know, uh, like, this is how Weimar Germany ro- started. This is how... or. This is how it, Weimar Germany ended, I should say, not started. But, you know, this is what happened with the fascists in Spain. This, you had Antifa coming up. Yeah. Gaining, like, and then they were the ones who were causing the violence. They were the ones who were instigating the violence. And then the fascists got sympathy. And, yeah. Like, you know, we all know how that turns out. Like, I'm, so I, 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 uh, I agree. I also, like, to try to, I'm wondering what you think about solutions. Because, like, we obviously agree on how just ugly and dangerous and, yes, um, influential these shitty theories are I, I'm I am also probably like you getting tired of people dismissing it as like fringy college stuff mm-hmm. like no I'm not calling out any names in particular but companies yeah. that I know are sending out emails that are pretty much demanding loyalty oaths to black. I mean it, yes it, it's it's not it's not contained to Portland or Seattle really and um, yes, it's a problem. But what for as far as solutions go because I wonder you brought up Hannah Arendt and she writes I love her work. I love her work. And, and she writes a ton about um, the meaning stuff I was talking about. And I won't go through her whole theory and mm-hmm. the human condition, but it breaks down labor versus work versus action as sort of ways of being in the world. Um, she, she hammers Marx in a very nice way that shows he was so right about assessing the problem and then so dreadfully wrong about like solving it. It was really interesting. Mm-hmm. But the, the term that gets attached to her a lot is the economic man that we have, we have redefined ourselves as the economic animal, that your worth and your place in the world is finding your, your place in this economic system. So she deals a lot with these meaning problems. But sticking with the economic problem, as far as solutions today and practical solutions, um, 
if you and I are both committed to, to science and, and honest data interpretation and we keep hitting that rock saying, you know what, ideas in people's heads really fucking matter. And we don't know how to solve that one directly because it's too volatile for people. We could talk about it. I can make movies with Sam Harris. You could do your work and we'll keep reforming religion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, do what we can. But you know what a huge causal factor is for something like inequality of outcome or even what, why there is a disparity in police shootings with, with race breakdowns is poverty, poverty in education. And so we say, hey, let's try to intervene there. And we say, income inequality is, is out of control. Wealth inequality is out of control. Let's, let's get, do UBI. Let's give people fucking money. Not welfare, because there's a taboo attached to it, and, I, and I'm rather convinced by the removing the, the, the stain of being on the government dole or whatever is a huge benefit to UBI. Let's give UBI. Um, would, would that help people be less attracted? These ideas aren't going to go away, but will they be less attracted to a um, eternal victimhood religious narrative of something like critical race theory or any of these theories that critical theories that we see, will they be less attracted to it with a a more equal economic playing field? I, 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 I love that solution as just as a as a as a solvent for that solves a lot doesn't solve addresses a lot and I and I see that one. But here's the thing: I have a, I have a worry. Like, okay, there's no quick, easy fix, and it's going to take a generation because, yeah, absolutely. You know, you know, it took 25 years to get to this point, and you know, you can talk about the stuff that predated critical race theory and intersectionality and all that. But it took us 25 years to get to this point. First of all, the academy should look at itself and say, you know what? Because, okay, and I don't want to shit on schools or whatever, but they've caused a huge problem here. But physics majors weren't going to go to the English department to tell them how to do English. And they weren't expecting the English department to come and tell them how to do physics, right? Mm -hmm. Like you had that, you know, the academy made itself little niches and people stuck in their niches. So when the critical race theorists and all this stuff came out, oh, well, you know, these people are PhDs in race and Mm -hmm. there might be issues of racism in the school and they, and so if you're an academic, you understand that they've got a PhD in race, you know, like yeah. Brett Weinstein's idea of ideal, ideal laundering. Like, so through that process, they've got, you know, pedigree now. Yeah. So they become an administrator in the school. Now it's not the English department now coming to the physics department. It's the diversity and inclusion office saying, Oh, there's a problem with diversity and inclusion in physics. Okay. Yeah. They're not addressing the physics. They're addressing, uh, you know, a, a societal problem and they've right. got the, pedigree to fix it so the physics department might listen to them and then you have a paper that came out earlier this year talking about light supremacy in physics how light supremacy is white supremacy okay uh, like the study of yeah 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 yeah, exactly and but this is from a person studying physics yeah yeah. there is a problem here so the academy has to i think jonathan heights right it's either are you there for the truth or are you there for social justice if you're there for the truth we have an established set of how we determine what is as close as possible to the objective truth that you can get, right? Like science doesn't say it's going to give you the objective truth. It says it's going to give you as close an approximation as it can. And that's something that we can all share. Whereas the theorists, I mean, yeah. And then it's up to you. Like I keep on reinforcing that science doesn't give you the answers. No, it's up to you. It just points you in the right direction of like, Oh, here's where the thing might be the causal relationship. If you want the outcome to be different, intervene here. Here's where the thing is. And yeah. And, and so, 
they might say like, oh, we're doing that. The thing we want to change is perfectly, pro- I don't know, proportional yeah. <laughs> boardrooms or something to yeah, the population. Exactly. But that's, but, but that, and that's why it's a, it's a science denial because yeah. that just, do you want perf- perfectly proportional in my, in my um, article as well, do you want perfectly proportional outcomes of gender uh, or sex, however you say it, for kindergarten or elementary school teachers, which is 89% women in yeah. America? Do you want that? Because if you are, well, fix that one too, because that one yeah. apparently is way off. And so, um, it, but it's not, no, which is why we, we know it's not, a, it's not an honest movement. It's not an honest. No. And so we're stuck with saying, are they actually stupid or are they actually just uh, activists and, and, and full of resentment? They're full okay. of resentment. Um, and the, but it's, again, this goes to the superhero thing. Resentment is why Killmonger was the bad guy. Yeah. Resentment is why Magni, because he couldn't get over it. Yeah, is, but it's also. I, I'm, I'm going to give a pitch for. I'm going to give a pitch for if I can. This, I'm, I, yeah, I know I'm leaning on Chloe here, but um, the the notion of forgiveness needs to be talked about quite interestingly here, and the, and seeing and what it's morphed into is not forgiveness but apologies. If yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, no, you know I, I get it, but that. but it's 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 all performative, right? Again, in this, in this, in this, like a seance. Yeah, really. but, but it's, I, I've seen people we know in both respect. I don't want to put out names or whatever because, not because of them, but someone else might. But they were told that, okay, you know, blah, 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 blah. I went to the protests in Washington, D.C. I haven't had a chance to, because they're a bit of a public figure and I haven't had a chance to put out a, a statement about this. They're like, oh, going to the protest doesn't matter. Only putting out a statement matters. Okay, so this person spent two days at the protests in Washington, D.C., so they were actually out there doing something, and they didn't have a chance to make a statement. And then they were being told that what they did meant nothing because they didn't put some magic words out there, right? It's, it's, it's all performative. Well, that's what, it's performative, but that's why, I mean, yes. The, 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 but even if, I, I mean, I, I want you to get that point of the problem we're seeing with demanding apologies rather than actually offering forgiveness. And demanding apologies is, is we've done this. I mean, I, I'm talking not even about like the movement here. I'm just talking about human psychology and like a relationship with your lover. And if you've gotten a fight and you're demanding an apology, this is a relationship yeah, where communication has actually broken down. But I don't think they're... Okay, rather but, than giving forgiveness. No, but, okay, but like, here's the thing with forgiveness and all that here, right? Collectively, no. Like I don't, there's nothing that you need no, to apologize to me for and there's nothing I need to and vice versa right there's no apology for like the, on a societal level so like those scenes of those white people begging for of forgiveness course, yeah. I mean that, that that is to me so repulsive like that that taking on that guilt but so yes we have I'm to be able to they're the ones yeah, who okay. need to apologize yeah, no no but yeah. okay yes we as a society just need to be able to forgive ourselves and forgive each right. other because there's there's a problem here but that's something that i think has to be done on a personal level where you just you know what i'm gonna let it all go there's yeah, there should yeah. there should be no you know these stupid gestures of taking a knee or whatever like, yeah, but, yeah but wait a second I, i'm trying to talk and and yes like I think you're a little too hung up on the critical theory stuff, to be yeah. honest. Oh, maybe yeah, I am. I don't know. You're, you're probably online a little bit too much uh, these uh, days. It's really nice to step away from it uh, um, because it can drive you fucking crazy. And that's why you reached out to me like, let's talk about all this madness. And I think it's driving you crazy um, because when I mean, when I say, just talking about the superheroes again, um, I'm going to get this from Mr. Rogers, who's kind of a real superhero, who is very Christian, by the way. But, uh, yeah. Um, and this is where he's getting his notion of forgiveness and that we could talk about that and the, whatever. But um, 
I think he'd have in the in his documentary and in his film and in his writing, he said, you know, for, it's very simple, but forgiveness is the act of this of releasing someone from the anger you feel towards them, and it can be a, a someone or a something, whatever. Like that's forgiveness. Forgiveness actually is not is is granted from within. No one ever needs to even ask for it. You can give it, and this is again Christianity kind of lays claim to this notion. I think I'm thinking about this too because Hannah Arendt places a lot of it as, as Christianity being this notion of forgiveness. But what uh, what Killmonger couldn't do was forgive his circumstance and the things that happened to him. What Magneto couldn't do is forgive the darkness of humanity and those Nazis. Mm. What, like the bad guys, what Joker couldn't do, and he's a different case because there's also other issues, but couldn't forgive these awful things that happened to him to a point where he probably snapped. And then you have this other problem where he's now uh, maybe psychotic, but Magneto is not. He's, he's rational. Um, and Killmonger is not. He's also rational. He's just very angry and he couldn't forgive. And what you're yes to to bring in your theory stuff and why it is so maddening is that you and i both know what i just said is totally obvious and totally like good a good idea in the way that the way that societies need to operate the way that relationships need to operate the way that friendships need to operate is really based on this notion of whether you grant it or not the ability to forgive and that's like what what all kind of society is that's the glue of a lot of things that we do um to each other as humans and yes, the critical theory, and I'm putting the, the, the blame on the media now, amplifying it even more, as you know, is making that not just an act of, uh, not just an impossible act, but a cowardly act. And now I'm specifically talking about black people forgiving white people or cops or racism or redlining or whatever. They're saying to forgive, you read this kind of stuff, like to forgive genuinely would be some sort of internalized racism or, mm. or, or acting white or whatever. That's very, 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 very dangerous because it's literally, I want to re- reemphasize, it's literally what made Killmonger the bad guy. It's what made Malcolm X so unhelpful early on. Talking about people talking about uh, calling people porch monkeys and uh, Uncle Toms and stuff. Jackie Robinson, the first black, black player ever to play Major League Baseball. Malcolm X called him a, uh, an Uncle Tom. And he used to call Martin Luther King, of course, an Uncle Tom, and he started to change. But what's so tragic about the Malcolm X story and why I read, read it as almost a direct analogy to the Killmonger story in Black Panther was as he, hopefully, and I think, really started to see the problem of him being unable to forgive and it causing him to literally say things, I, gosh, I could pull up the quote in the line, but praising God and, and asking him for more favors of plane crashes that kill white people while sort of smirking about it in an interview with the French press in his early days, noticing that that was such a not just harmful thing for him, but probably harmful thing for the movement that he wanted to be a part of. And he started to try to leave it and started to try to reform from it. It literally killed him. They literally came for him and killed him when he started to turn against Elijah Muhammad and the black Muslim movement and all that, it literally killed him the way that Killmonger, it literally killed him. And uh, you, you, if, you, if you go so deep into this stuff, you will reach the point, like Malcolm X, like Killmonger, like Magneto, where it will kill you if you try to leave it. And that's, you know, yeah. that's not, that's, that's, that's not a facetious analogy when it comes to Malcolm X. It's not just a story that you hear in superhero stories. You can analogize it however you want, <clears throat> but, but it's, it's a notion that we have to, 
we have to defend. And of course, you know this just as well as I do, because obviously you're spending more time with it. The whole problem of the wokeism religion is you cannot apologize. No, nope, you, you can't. You cannot. So, so, so like you said, it's performative, but it's also false. It's a false oh, it's, lore because its entire meaning is based on, on actually never granting forgiveness, but eternally apologizing oh, yeah, more yeah. and more. Oh, and but they more. say it so straight out. Point, they say yeah, it straight out that they'll get off the fucking road because it's going to kill you. That's that's not what civilization was built on. Yeah. It's also like the most unchristian thing to to pull on Hannah Arendt if you're going to obviously forgiveness has existed elsewhere, but they do emphasize it quite a bit to turn the other cheek stuff. Yeah. And the black community happens to be insanely Christian, which is where you would also like hope some of this, and I'm sure this is happening, and I'm being overly generally here. Of course, the black community is very conservative, it turns out, and also like philosophically conservative. The loudest voices you hear are the young, woke ones and leading the movement or whatever. But this kind of conversation is also one that needs to be won within the black community. And if they use Christianity to do, to do with it, which would be very interesting, because I did see the thing about taking down white Jesus, yeah. um, forgiveness is the key for us to at least starting to have a conversation and and i don't know who they like no one needs to apologize but it's forgiveness for even their own even their own parents or whatever it is we need if we're going to start making progress this is what happened in south africa with the restorative justice kind of movement to limited success as it was um it's a philosophical notion that i hate that religion sort of lays claim to because it's a really good one just Mm -hmm. on a purely secular society building thing um, but it's missing from the conversation. So yeah, I just wanted—I know you get it—but the difference yeah. of demanding an apology and not offering forgiveness, which is bullshit and performative from both sides, is so dreadfully toxic, yeah. and 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 it's driving me crazy. Also, just like you, without yeah. being online as much as you. Uh, but I mean, I, I think that you know, there's got to be a way where, as a society, like you know, take a step back and then you know, how, figuratively or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. you come to terms with it. You f- you forgive the other side. You forgive yourself for whatever. Like, yeah. th- there's a lot of shit going on. But I mean, if you want to do something, you know, like instead of these performative things, and some people, well, oh, that's not enough, right? Like, you know, get your neighbors together and do something nice for the neighborhood for Christ's sake, right? Like that, that that's mm-hmm. that's a form of forgiveness. Um, but yeah, th- again, like I think we're we're right now at two conflicting stories and this is this was or maybe three at this point i think you've got like you've got your rouch's thing you've got the liberal science but then at this point we've got the fundamentalist and the humanitarian threat and it's getting harder and harder to tell the two apart yeah and horseshoe is happening well it's not i'm sorry it's been a circle for a few years now no no, but it has i can't tell the difference you know i mean black lives matter asking for segregated dorms on campuses and getting it on a bunch and the kkk cheering them on i mean come on like they're asking for the exact same thing like there's there is an issue there when you know if you say you're for black lives and you're doing something and the kkk cheers you on you might want to take a step back yeah just maybe or that's just me right like but yeah Yeah, no i I think i think don't don't underestimate the absolute turbocharger of the media pushing all of that circle and 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 we have an election year coming up that is that is bonkers in the middle of a pandemic which is something that doesn't care about anything, anything we said uh, okay but that, that, there's the, there's the media as well right yeah. you know you had doctors oh coming out you had doctors yeah. in the epidemiologists saying oh racism is the worst virus than covid 
Okay, that's yeah. It's very very scary. Okay, it's that's very scary. scary that they're doing that. Yeah. Okay, yeah, but then yeah, you know, the courts might be holding, but it doesn't seem like yeah, yeah, the top medical yeah, professionals are holding. Okay, but yeah. then you're you know you're looking at the coverage of all these protests, blah 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 blah. You know, no one's talking about the spike in L.A. L.A. is now like the hot spot in the U.S. No one's talking yeah. about that. And I'm not saying like obviously it's not the protests happen today. Spike, you know, it takes a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. but you know. Trump has a stupid thing in Tulsa. The next day, oh, the largest daily increase in COVID cases the day after Trump's rally. Okay, yeah, yeah that's factual, but it's not truthful because the rally has nothing to do with the next day's increase in COVID, right? Yeah. Um, so they're, they're chasing headlines, and it's it's very, and, very damaging. And, and yeah, it's, I mean. it's not doing any. I mean, honestly, unfortunately, it's like I'm sounding like, you know, one of the, like an Antifa person, like, but we need an overhaul. We need an actual overhaul or we need a reset. Like, you know, you go back to the last screen, like the last safe screen on when you, when you're playing a video game and that would mm-hmm. be like around 98, like we yeah. need to do a reset back to then. What have been working up to that point? Because after that point, I think that's when we focused on, okay, this is a problem of racism. This is a problem of sexism. This is a pro- where it might be an issue, but it's not the problem, right? You're not solving the problem. You're solving the secondary thing. And if you go look at like, you know, like that the the thing in St. Louis there I was telling you about. So if you go looking mm-hmm. for racism there, you're not going to solve it. But if you go looking for the oppression, then because of all these different police departments or something, and then maybe you know you can get a something. You get a ticket in one district, one community. Every cop along the way, you just show them the ticket, and they just let you go because you've already been fined. You know, like that would fix the problem. But if you go looking to fix racism, that's never going to get solved. And I think we we, we reset back to '98 and to say what was working. <laughs> And, no, but honestly, like I'm using that as an arbitrary date. <laughs> yeah, you can't. Yeah. I, I, you know, like, I mean, it's, not, it's it's pre-social media. It's right on the cusp. I, th- I think uh, we we should be we should be talking about. And, and and when I mean social media, I also just mean its effect on real on yeah. old school media. Uh, yes, and and the influx of kids who were who maybe lived through the through a decadent '80s who were suddenly <laughs> entering those those institutions that would help bring them down. Um, yeah. yeah, people are people are compromised by these things. There's the you know how I feel about the balance between lib- libertarianism. I mean, I'll, I'll end this on a pessimistic note <laughs> because I'm not, I'm actually not optimistic about the United States being able to see its way out of a lot of these things. Um, I don't know how quick this downfall is going to be. And I, and I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. I don't think I'm not, you know, saying total anarchy and collapse of society, but it just seems that when I give people the benefit of the doubt, even this, critical theory people of why were they attracted to it in the first place? It seems to be, um, or why is the media, I'm looking at the stats right now. Do you know how many people have been killed since George Floyd by cops in this, in this country? This is public data. Washington. I, um, I think I heard there's something like 120. Not quite. This is from, well, not according to that. So, so from May 26, which is the day after he got killed, uh, 74 is what's showing on the Washington post data. Um, a lot of the stuff is unknown to this point where they, they start to release more and more. People just sort of track it down about like what the race was and everything. So not a lot of this is known. But 46% of them were white, 29% black, which is actually down from the year average, 21 Hispanic, 2% Asian. You didn't hear about any of them except for Rayshard Brooks, which I'm looking at it now. And I have all the data points here now. The only one that had no gun, black man, body cam. The only one. It's a taser. Uh, there's whites, 
there's plenty of whites that are showing up without guns, uh, but nobody can, so it's not as good. Actually, well, he, oh, yeah, here's one. Oh, they had a gun named Cody Cook. Many of the names aren't released yet. Um, yeah, th- this, the media creating the narrative, or let's say they would say not creating it, but enforcing the narrative and having the the fuel of academia and the critical theory stuff behind them to justify it in some way, um, to give them the benefit of the doubt with some sort of conspiracy theory, Alex Jonesy stuff, it's just the incentive of the market. The ratings were the highest they've ever been. Sean Hannity makes $40 million a year. Every yeah. single congressman, congressman and woman has increased their wealth exponentially in the last couple of decades. This is also sort of a new thing. Like if we just say this is economic forces and the market being in contact with things that it really corrupts, whether that's science, whether that's the media, there's certain things that we don't want market forces to, to, to touch. It's why I defended lifetime appointments for Supreme Court justices, which might feel counterintuitive upon first thing, but I'm saying like, no, keep the market out of that. And I'm saying markets generally being like, I don't want anybody thinking about keeping their job when they're on the bench. I want them to be trying to, to, to punt on fourth down when it makes sense and go forward on fourth down when it makes sense and do the best job and interpret things. So if it's incentives and markets that are touching things that corrupt them very quickly and let's say drive them to the loudest voices in the room, the, root of, the, the, the places of the room that are worth the most money, which we know is outrage clicks, which we know they're afraid of bans, which we know becomes literally performative. Everything becomes a signal. Even companies putting out Black Lives Matter, you're like, come on, you're selling shoes. Um, it, 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 it starts to corrupt things in ways that I don't even need to explain to you because they're so obvious. And then when you add in America as a nation, as the founding story of this nation is is the obsession and love of the free market and you could throw in free speech into that to a certain degree but not really because i think free speech is also misunderstood and it's more about like we talked about earlier earlier about compelled speech rather than free speech but um america being in love with markets i don't see them if you're saying re- hit the reset button to 1998 immediately in my head i'm like yes get the market further away from the media market forces. Let them operate like they have lifetime appointments rather than being subject to what's happening on Twitter. Get things further away from the market forces. The market is great at houses and pencils and coffee cups and and material goods. It's great at a lot of things. It should not be touching science. It should not be touching academia. We're talking a lot about academia and just talk about the market of how fucking expensive it got and how the students took over is also just a story of economics of the deans and the presidents I know my father was in academia. He's like terrified of the students because they have all the money. So suddenly yeah. if the students complain about you to the dean. They're like, well, who's, you know, that person, their dad probably pay or mom pays 50 grand a year for them to go here. So I think you should yeah. give them what they want. But the, if, like, you got, the if you got, rid, okay, the, the sorry, policy. sorry. If you got rid yeah, of yeah. the administrators, like, like I've been speaking to teachers, like elementary school teachers, right? I've spoken to a few of them um, in the States and stuff in the they're going out asking for donations so they can put a pencil sharpener in their classroom. But then the school will go out and hire another couple of administrators at 120 grand a year. Okay. And these administrators are pushing this bullshit. Same thing in universities. You know, uh, like right during COVID, they were, they were talking about laying off doctors because there wasn't enough people going to the emergency rooms. Yeah. Screw that. Lay off the fucking administrators that are going to bring in yeah. this diversity bullshit. Right. So, if the schools got rid of some of these high ticket jobs that do nothing but cause division, yeah. 
But why are they there in the first place? Well, because oh, the students were demanding it. Or or the Title IX, the state was demanding it. Yeah, well, um, why, why was the Title IX? Uh, okay. I, I think you have to trace these back, back to, to, uh, to responding to market forces. Okay, is it responding to market forces or is it we got to fix racism? This guy comes in, tells you how to fix racism. And then you create this office where students can go... You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's I, I, okay. Yes, conspiratorial with it. Like, I'm not being conspiracy with just with just corruption of okay. a market. It's like people demanding this crazy shit. They get the crazy shit, and they have all the money. Okay, crazy but shit states. people are demanding crazy shit. But when I was at university, I remember someone freaking out because the Canadian Blood Services came out with uh, new rules due to AIDS, right? Due to HIV and mm -hmm. due to AIDS and protests and this and that. Oh my God! You're bringing back eugenics. I mean, I, someone actually said that, all right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but the adults in the room were able to say, "You know what? You're being silly." Now the adults are encouraging them. They're encouraging the silliness. They're not protest, and they they weren't upset that these kids were protesting something they thought that was wrong. They were okay with that. They were protesting the bad argumentation. Now the now the teachers and the administrators are leading the bad argumentation. So th there is yeah. a problem there. Yeah. So. I mean, I'm not, I, I, again, this is not a univariant thing, right? Yes. But if you're teaching kids that this is, you know, this is the issue and then they turn around and protest it, is it the kid, then the administration yeah, buckles and gives what the kids want. The kids wouldn't course, know what to being want. Being a professor, being yeah. a professor though, just, yeah. you're, yeah. you're always, we have less free will. Like, like you're, you're compromised, you're biased, whether you know it or not, yeah. call it implicit, to choose just happen you they happen to choose the theory that all the kids are clamoring for that makes them feel better rather than telling them they're wrong and them all giving you a bad review and demanding that you get fired yeah. and you lose your tenure or uh, i mean it's like you don't you don't take the so kids imbalanced. you don't take right. the kids that seriously right but also again when when did but, pro but just to just yeah. just to like point because i'm gonna have to jump yeah. in a second i could be going this is like two and a half hours yeah i know i was gonna say we should, we should get going uh, soon because no, i got if, I anyone, if anybody's still listening um <laughs> with that thing about America and the United States being addicted mm. to this is my, like my solution here is like, what is it? It's, it's either is to escape those market forces just by growing a damn backbone. Like maybe the university of Chicago letter that was so famous yeah. being like, listen, we're not going to coddle your kids. Although they have plenty of that happening at university of Chicago mm. still now. So growing a damn backbone is one thing, but then it's like, no, how do we, how do we make them more like Supreme court judges? How do we have them work for the state? That if the state can hold and the courts can hold that they're protected and their job in society is actually to teach the kids the truth, not be activists and make activists. Um, but I mean, a, ten a years, nation like the United States, ten years, just, ten not year, gonna, it's not going to do that. Like ten years, sort of like that. But I yeah, think they, I think they should give tenure. I think one of the one of the one of the ways of getting tenure, one of the the qualifications you need to have is that you do have the backbone before you have it. Okay, obviously not to be a complete and utter asshole, but <laughs> yeah. you do have the backbone to, to you know, go where the, the information leads you. you know, yeah, but, yeah. I mean, okay, yeah, so, and, yeah. No, but, and, go, go. and the university shouldn't be so so quick to punish. You know, again, this is a form of the teach the kids, and you can call it indoctrination, but, you know, just because you're upset, you know, doesn't mean that you have to go running to an adult. And again, that's, you know, the, the helicopter parenting, did that play a, a role in it? Like, you know, there's all kinds of different things. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like you have to 
get the kids, they, you know, whatever. At university, I shouldn't be calling them kids, but you should be able to get them to say that just because I disagree with this, I don't need to go run to an adult. Uh, granted, if the teacher does say something horrific, like, you know, makes an overtly sexual comment and or overtly racist, but there was a teacher, uh, I think she was fired because she was discussing, I can't remember what she was discussing, but it, it had the word nigger in it, and she got fired because she was talking about a speech someone gave, and it was like a black person or whatever, I can't remember. Yeah. Okay, I mean... Like, how am I supposed to talk about Huck Finn if I can't use that word? Yeah, you know, like, so you're, yeah, just don't be the old man, you know, shaking your fist at the crowd, or cloud, talk about, that was a very obvious one, like, talking about Huck Finn and um, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird were just banned or whatever. Yeah, in Minneapolis, like, they, yeah. say, they say the N-word, yeah. and they don't want to, like, whatever, but um, why was that professor fired? Just talk about, use their language, where are the power structures here? Yeah. And they're all economic. It's because those kids pay the damn bills for the university, and so they win the argument. It, there's, 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 you don't need much deeper analysis to that. I could build a spreadsheet for it and show you, but it's like if we start with basic, like why and where are these things happening, and the power structures. Why, why isn't the, why doesn't the teacher feel feel empowered to that? Yes, grow a backbone, get better deans, whatever. But if I'm looking for solutions and my and my answer is grow a backbone, everyone, I'm going to lose to someone say, here's a million dollars. OK, like, no, let's, talk, let's talk about incentives, how to realign them to. to or, but but the, why? The why is outcome. but why is tuition so high? One of the reasons tuition is so high right. is because of all these extra administrators, right? Yeah, sure. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm not, okay. I'm not saying okay. it's like all the. the yeah, yeah, of course. They so, so I mean, so one of the ways to get out of this mess is make tuition cheaper which I don't think anyone would have an issue with that, except for maybe the universities because they're raking in the money. But, but the, yeah, uh, wait, just pause there because I, I, I am going to have to go. Yeah. The re it's the perfect example of like make tuition cheaper. Yeah, Bernie fucking Sanders ran on free college. Look what happened to him in this country. Like Andrew Yang runs on that. Look what, look what happened. The obsession with the anti-handout in America is, is I'm talking about getting the market away from things that shouldn't be touching, including universities. Okay, yeah. And that is a very un-American thing to be talking about. The solutions that you talk about. That's why I'm trying to talk yeah. about universal basic income. Um, no, no, I, I get it. Better. But anyway, but, I have to jump. Yeah, no, I, I'll let you go. Sorry, uh, we were going a little bit too long. But uh, look, I just want to just let know people where, where people can get a hold of you. And yeah. I'll put the oh. links and stuff in the description. Yeah, well, Twitter, I'm on there, although not as much. I'm trying to stay off, and it's been doing good for my mind. Uh, I'm writing a book. It's probably years away from coming out uh, on death and grief in the information age, which should be really interesting um, about virtual reality. We didn't talk about this at all, but virtual reality and augmented reality and all kinds of weird things to do with your ashes that people are doing now in the 21st century and a philosophical endeavor into that. Uh, and yeah, and I write and I do the Dilemma podcast, which is starting up actually really soon, July 6th. There's a very loud bird that's squawking right now, if you hear it. Yeah, <laughs> hear it okay. uh, but uh, so, anyways. Yeah, this was well, fun yeah. as usual. Well, whatever. Uh, we'll have to continue it some other time. But I'll let you go. Thanks a lot. And thanks everyone for yeah. listening.